Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 237 with my guest Gladys A., I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed. Di- <laughs> is this how it's going to be? <laughs> from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. There's all kinds of stuff you can do there. You can join the forum. You can read blogs. You can fill out a survey, which we like to read on the show. And uh, even even if you uh, your survey isn't read on the show, um, it gets uh, usually gets read, and it helps us get to uh, know who you are uh, better. Um, I shared with you guys last week about the um, shooting, uh, the suicide by cop that I that I had uh, seen the week before, and um, I think I experienced the first. I I hesitate to use the word PTSD because that that might mean for a minute uh, not minimizing something that happened to me uh, or that I am experiencing. But I was in the grocery store with uh, with my wife um, last weekend, and so this would have been about a week after the the event happened, and um, I got so angry. And normally I'm really chill, like when I'm in a, a grocery store, even if it's crowded. But I was just uh, I just wanted to I wanted to punch people, and I started. Um, um, like talking to my wife but loud enough for the slow cashier and the slow person checking out in front of us you know just loud enough that they could that I, I, they could hear and, and you know I was making faces and rolling my eyes and it uh you know I justified it because I wasn't doing directly it directly at them but it was uh, it was not cool and I didn't realize at the time that that might have been um 
you know, a ripple of the fucked up thing that I'd seen the week before. But here's what's cool about being in recovery and therapy and doing all the, you know, the the work uh, that that I've done on myself is um, I I was able to connect the dots and say oh that that was probably um, a result of what I'd seen the week before and just that knowledge um, felt comforting I I think a lot of times one of the biggest things we need to know is what we're experiencing is an actual thing that it's not made up in our mind that that it's not that we're not just lazy assholes because I think that's a place the mean voice in our brain that's it's that's its top selling song is you're a lazy asshole you fucked up your future is bleak because your past is horrible that that's essentially the default mode for the mean part of my brain but um i wanted to share that with you but overall i've been doing uh, i'm doing okay uh, the consistent exercise is really helping i'm completely off the mirtazapine now and i think i've already lost about 5 pounds so um excited about that i was at the limit of my biggest pants that's a scary place to be that is a scary place to be because then you got to go to the store and you got to buy new sizes. Oh, that is that is not a fun trip to make. I'm going to read a couple of surveys before we get to the um, conversation with Gladys. And Gladys is a, a pseudonym, uh, by the way. Um, this and, and by the way, Gladys uh, did some work in the... Um, in the sex industry, uh, she doesn't currently work in it, and uh, I believe she's the third guest that we've had on in the history of this show who uh, does sex work. And uh, I've put it out there before, but I would really like to talk to a male um, who works in the sex industry or has worked in the sex industry. You know, um, yeah. Anyway, this is from the shame and Se- no uh, struggle in a sentence uh, survey filled out by a uh, soldier uh, who calls himself Joel, and um, he's in his thirties. And about his depression, he writes, uh, "It's rated at severe, um, isolated in the deepest, darkest hole. No matter how much you hear people are willing to help, they won't. Stuck doing this shit alone." about his anxiety, struggling to get air, sweating my ass off, freaking out and thinking people are judging me hardcore, about his sex addiction. I try to avoid the funk of depression with sex or masturbation, but it never makes me feel good. And due to my meds, sometimes I don't, quote, finish, which creates really bad arguments after. Uh, hopefully not after you're masturbating, because that, be that would be a really unnecessary argument. Uh... OCD, uh, I have a high detail of organization and counting with certain things. PTSD, fucking thanks, army. Can't fucking sleep or function in public like I used to. I'm on edge way too much. Uh, anger issues, I have a short fuse. A big thing that will set me off is, re- is repeating what I said. Um, snapshot from his life, I fucking failed at killing myself. Nothing makes you feel like a bigger piece of shit. You know, I, I can understand how that's how the mean part of your brain would tell you that, but ask yourself, have you ever looked at somebody who attempted suicide and said to yourself, that person's a piece of shit? Never. Never once. 
I feel nothing but empathy for people who, who do that. I, I hope that you can let some of people's compassion in for you, but I'm sure it's hard in the in the painful state that you're in right now. Um, anyway, continuing with what he wrote, when I start feeling depression coming on, I tend to mask it with anger. After that, I beat myself up for allowing to get to this point. I'm then stuck in my personal hell. But he let people in. Let people in. And if the people that you're letting in are disappointing you, reach out to other people. Um, okay, I, I don't know what it's like going through what you're going through. I know a little bit of it, but um, I would be... I would be dead if I hadn't let people in my life. And I don't want to see you throw your life away. This was the uh, same s- survey filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Schrodinger's dog. He writes about his um, depression, wanting to die, shame for wanting to die, and shame for the shame of wanting to die. That's good. That's just good. Uh, alcoholism and drug addiction, whatever it is, please just give it to me. Oh, I was a garbage can too. I was a garbage can, man. Um, racial cultural bias, too white for black people, too black for white people. Uh, snapshot from his life. Fuck, it's only 11 o'clock. This work is boring. Today will be boring. I'm boring. I've never had another girl. I'll never have another girlfriend. I'll never have sex again. It's probably better that way. I'm so fucking disgusting. I'm so lonely. I'm so horny. I need to do something. I'm too scared. I'm such a little bitch. Why does anyone put up with me? I'll never amount to anything. I don't have the will. I'm wasting my life away. My friends should be ashamed of me. My family should be ashamed of me. I should call my mom more. I should call my brother more. My brother's suffering too. I can't help my brother. I can't help myself. I'm in my head too much. Fuck. It's only 11.01. This work is boring. That was great. Thank you for that. I think I think a lot of people just went, wow, me too. Me too. And then this one is uh, by a, a woman who calls herself a wolf and about her OCD. She writes, having OCD is like having a song stuck in your head, but instead of La Bamba, you can't stop thinking about punching a baby. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, (laughs) So, that is when I first felt love. Like, I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, This intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was... Amazing. I'm here with uh, Gladys, who, uh, the the way our paths crossed, you had emailed me because a friend of yours um, 
was starting either a blog or a podcast, and she couldn't decide whether to do it anonymously or not. Correct. Uh, she uh, works in the uh, adult industry. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you shared something about yourself, too. And Yeah. Um, yes. So um, pretty much um, very recently, I stopped escorting. Uh, well, actually, it wasn't that recently anymore. It was September 2014. Congratulations. Um, yeah. Is, I mean, it, re- it really didn't get much out of it at the end of the day because, like, the loss and the gains kind of just, like, equal out in terms of, like, I put a little money in my savings, but it wasn't, like, a huge money-making thing. And um, But anyway, so I had rec- I recently stopped escorting and... Um, have really been struggling to find a way to deal with that. Um, Financially? No, no, no. Like, um, mentally, emotionally. Because, like, I had this really great setup where I was just putting everything in sort of a vault situation. until Compartmentalizing. Later right. The, yeah. yeah. Um, that was working great, and then it stopped working. <laughs> um, the, so, le- the lease on your compartment ran out. Yeah, yeah, lease was up. Um, and I just it came to the point where I was like, okay, well, I need to figure this out and, like, reach out to, like, a community of some sort. Um, and, like, when I first started, I had sort of been – there's, like – I don't know if I'm answering your question. I think I'm just going off on a tangent. It's okay. Um, But there's basically, like, when I started, well, I first started, (laughs) now I'm just going to where I started. I'd actually (laughs) like to start from the beginning beginning of of your... But I read, long story short, I reached out to you because I had stopped escorting and was looking for maybe a way to, to talk about that and a podcast seemed like a good idea and my friend had also been in the industry and was interested yeah. in doing that and i thought some of the stuff that you shared with me was uh interesting because you were at a, a i think at that point you were at a financial crossroads but mm-hmm. you decided you wanted to put it behind you and you're mm-hmm. also uh if i remember correctly you're uh you emigrated here from columbia um close kind of Where? um i was ap- actually adopted um as a baby from paraguay oh okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> not quite it's emigrated. All, it's not all, quite Columbia. I'm a white guy. It's, yeah, it's all, all the same it's to fine. me, Gladys. Yeah, I know. It's, it's um, yeah, I don't know how I got that all, all mixed up in my fine. brain. I smoked a lot of weed in my day. Sure, yeah. Um, so you were born here then? I was born in Paraguay, but I was adopted when I was four months. So I, see. I was very, very young when I was adopted. Okay, I was funny because when you, you, when we met, uh, you know, five minutes ago, I was like, wow, she has no accent. Oh, yeah, that would have been really amazing. I should have just said that I was born there and immigrate or never mind because then i would have been pulling off really great accent um talk about your your childhood what was your childhood like where were you raised Uh, do you have siblings um yes i was raised in um well i was kind of my childhood was, was split in half um between um zero to nine i lived in uh egan and then eden prairie minnesota and then um when I was nine, we moved to Scottsdale, Arizona. Did you? Oh boy, there's a switch. Did <laughs> yeah. you play? Did you play hockey when you were a kid? No, I was terrible at sports. I tried all of them, but I really just got gymnastics and dance and singing and acting and all that stuff. But no, I never did hockey. I should have. So you moved to uh, Scottsdale. Huge mm-hmm. change of pace. And mm-hmm. you were how old when you moved? Nine. Nine. 
It's uh, like the worst age to move. You're like gonna, just about to hit puberty and like. And, and plus, I would imagine you you had built a you know a circle of friends yes, and yes. people got to know you and it felt like home. And then all of a sudden you get uprooted. What what was that like? Um, that was really kind of terrible, and I really like resented my mom for a long time. She's single. Um, where was and, your, where was your dad? Um, so my mom is, is a single mother. She adopted me and I my see. sister as a single mother. So she was never attached to a partner. Okay. Um, she had, she like previously had partners and then like when we were growing up, she had boyfriends and stuff. But, um, so wait, what, what the, the move to Scottsdale, yes, it was but very hard. Uh, um, and the total number of sibling uh, of I've, kids in your I've, family, um, Just you and your sister. Yeah. Me and my sister. And she's twenty. She's younger than me, a few years younger than me. And, um, right. So when I was three and a half, my mom, um, took me back to Paraguay on a trip and, um, to adopt my little sister who isn't like my biological sister, but she wanted to get me a sister, like is how I like to think of it. Um, and it was really amazing, like, because I don't know, to be, kind of like in second in charge to a little baby when you're like that young. I mean, not second in charge, but there is, there were nannies. You know, there's a little bit of a, of a power thing that the the kid get you all of a sudden you're not the baby. Yeah. And you like that? I did. Um, I don't know. I think I spent a little more time trying to get attention from my mom after that. There was a lot of, um, friction with like, in all of the home videos we have, it's me dancing in front of the camera and my sister like in the background, and I'm just I'm like making up a song to dance. My my mom's trying to like get my little baby sister in the frame, and I'm just like, yeah. Every so. <laughs> every comedian that I know, that is what our home movies look like. So yeah. you're not alone. It's really really embarrassing to watch. Except my my songs are pretty solid. Um, you singer. Yeah, I I thought I was when I was four. Um, but, yeah, so um, she had a lot of problems at an early age. Um, was that the only time you went back to Paraguay was to adopt I your sister? I went back again when I was 13, but I really just couldn't appreciate it at that age. I don't think I kind of was not into being um, a person of color. I wanted to really be white for a long time. Um, and I was kind of in the thick of, of, I just want to be like everyone else and everyone else was not from Paraguay. So it was kind of like the wrong time to go, I think. But, um, yeah, that was the only other time I went. Uh, you've never had any contact with your uh, biological family? No. And actually the second time we went was to track down my lawyers, um, who had arranged the adoption in Paraguay, but we couldn't find them in the phone book or anything. Um, and we we like hung out for a long time trying to figure out where they were, but it was like really hard. Um, so that was really kind of disappointing too. Um, I would imagine that had to be crushing. Yeah, <laughs> and also like to see how much the country had changed since I was thirteen. Yeah, it, or since I was like from age four to like age thirteen when I was going back. Like the change was incredible. Like. You remember it from when you were four? Oh, yeah. Wow. Most kids don't have memories before. uh, I remember, like, very well the country. What do you you remember about it? Um, It was... It was really nice. Like, it, it... We... Granted, we were staying in, like, the white tourist area, but, like... 
it was it was clean like it to i mean clean in the sense of like what santa monica is to like east hollywood or something like it was clean Mm. (laughs) um and what city were you um and it was asuncion which is the capital um and it was quite um beautiful and the people were very beautiful and kind and um i got looked after i was looked after by a number of people including like one of the um women who worked in the lobby and so like it was just like kind of a community feel right away which was cool um and then kind of and then when we went back it was the city was so dirty like it was filthy and um there were so many kids just wandering the streets like selling candy and stuff and and what politically had changed in the country be- between um the first and second time first and second time um the the uh government had just completely gone totally like corrupt it's uh i don't know what it's like there but now but it's probably still not great um i don't specifically know what happened politically because it's never really been my forte in terms of like historical knowledge (laughs) um but yeah um it was so um that was kind of unsettling to see but again i was 13 and kind of was discounting the whole experience as it was happening so it just like and how old didn't are you now phase me much i'm 26 i just okay. turned 26 right. happy birthday thank you gets a little less fun every year <laughs> <laughs> i can tell you after 21 they all suck yeah they all you want to you want to take them all back i was playing hockey i was telling gladys i was just playing hockey about two hours ago and i was just like i hate being my age mm. i felt so slow out there and i was like i when i was in my 40s all i could think about was i didn't have the energy i had when i was in my 30s and so now I should just think to myself, appreciate the energy, what little energy you have now, because when you're playing in your 60s, you're going to think, God, I wish I had the energy I had when I was in my 50s. That's true. I. What? It's hard. I don't know. I think I think that like it's totally possible to have a um, like a rebirth when you're older, I think, too. Like, I think as our bodies decline, though, like our minds are constantly um evolving so i think that as an older person you have the advantage of having had the time to grow and like make your experience i don't know i don't know what i'm talking about yes you do yes you do i i I think you're i think you're right on track the you know the one thing that comes with with age and experience is that you um get better at deciding what is important to you when I was young, the, the number of things that I worried endlessly and needlessly about and caused myself emotional turmoil, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of people do, you know, what other people think of you, you know, what my body looks like, you know, hating certain parts of my body and, mm-hmm. and thinking that they, you know, were way worse than they actually were you know like i look at a picture of myself now from when i was in my 20s and i was like i was a young good looking Mm -hmm. kid but then i was like oh i got a fucking gigantic head and my Mm. this is too fat and 
And we never, I, I hear people say that all the time, that you look back at pictures of yourself when you were younger and, and you feel kind of sad that you were so hard on yourself. So oh, I still don't have that distance. I still look back to like pictures of me when I was like young and I was like, oh, looking chunky there. Like, really? Yeah, I can't, I can't like distance myself from Do you have that. Uh, struggles with uh, um, body dysmorphia or? Yeah, but I mean, Because there's so, like this societal thing yeah. that, that fucks people up and then there is the like straight up it's a diagnosed Mm -hmm. warping of of perception yeah where would you put yours on on that scale um i had a huge thing happen like i had a huge issue with um i guess was anorexia it was kind of a combination combo deal like it was anorexia to a certain extent and then quickly became just like exercise five hours a day or four and a half hours a day or something and eat whatever and then it became like a weird vicious cycle where I just like eat a lot and then work out a lot and whatever um but before that 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 is that does fall under the guideline (laughs) or the heading of eating disorder yeah it was super bad and I mean when I my freshman year of college I lost maybe not 20 pounds but definitely like 15 pounds and I was at like 110 or 109 or 110 which like for my body frame I just looked disgusting like I looked bony and unhealthy and I was constantly getting like attempt interventions by my roommates and stuff and I just at that point just couldn't acknowledge that I had a problem but I knew I did like I like because I was eating well, I think I really knew I had a problem when I went to the hospital for it, but it wasn't actually for, like, the eating disorder. It wasn't because I was, like, so malnourished that I was fainting or something. It was because I was taking these diet pills, and they made my heart beat really fast, and I thought I was having a heart attack one night. Um, so my roommate, or no, I didn't tell anyone. That was, like, the freaky part, too, is, like, I didn't tell anyone I was, like, freaking out, and I thought I was having a heart attack, and I just, like, called 911. And, like, dealt with it myself. I think that's what happened. No, I think I called a cab and they took me to the hospital. But, yeah, it was still scary. You called a cab, but the cab driver was pre-med. So it was kind of a half ambulance. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully. I I hope he was. Um, no, that was a weird that was a weird situation. But that also kind of made me realize, yeah, maybe I should think about um, recovery. Um, and so what did you do? Um, well, I was in my first semester of school and I was doing really well. Um, and I didn't want to take any time off. So I just decided we had this really obscenely long winter break. It was like five weeks or something. Um, so, uh, I just spent that whole time kind of like, I don't know. I, I really spent a lot of time meditating and, um, writing my feelings down and just like being really cautious not to limit myself and it was I don't exactly know how I did it but I somehow managed to like so I somehow managed to reverse it by the time I got to my second semester so you broke you broke out of the cycle of uh anorexia gor- gorging and uh, ex- excessive exercise no I I stopped being like anorexic and then started Overeating and overexercising, oh, so I see. it was like I, I, I didn't quite to, recover, but I did. We kind call, of. We yeah. call that switching deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah. yeah, 
did one of those switcheroos. So, um, yeah, that was. Where fun. are you at with it today with uh, um, any kind of eating disorder? I never was pro- like properly diagnosed or talked about it um, to anyone except my friends or people who had also struggled with it. Um, so, I mean, it's. I, first of all, I'm just too old to have it. <laughs> like, it's just. I'm, that, I should have grown out of it. No, that's, um, that's erase that from your mind. <laughs> um, there are people in their 60s and 70s that have eating disorders that are every bit as serious as uh, a kid that's 14 years old. Right. Every, it has nothing to do with age. Right. I think the difference is that before it was just the eating disorder and now it's I don't generally have a problem with it but if there's something in my life that's stressing me out and i feel like i need control um over something and that ends up being my diet then that like something will trigger it and i'll maybe have like a two or three month bad period but for the most part i steer clear and it's no longer the restricting of food it's the uh, overeating and yeah, it's everything. compulsively exercising or both um i mean it's not it's not nearly as bad as it was before like it's it's a very tiny fraction of what okay. it act like so i don't even think it could be called an eating disorder at this point it's just like disordered eating which is like another way to 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 phrase because um i've read a lot of books on the subject and um there's this thing that they say that really like hits home with me in all aspects of my life, which is like, if the intent, if the feeling that you're having when you're, when you're eating any amount of food, whether it's a small amount or a huge amount, if your feeling is, is of anxiety and of, um, like disgust with yourself and stuff, um, and you feel like you're overfeeding yourself, that's still considered a binge even though you may have only eaten 200 calories. So because like the feeling is this, the feeling is still the same. So I think it's like that with, um, I mean, even, I mean, with any kind of like self-medicating or anything, like even if it's not alcoholism, like the feeling of, oh, I shouldn't be drinking right now, but I'm drinking anyway, like is still present. So it's like, yeah, what you're doing is unhealthy, even though you can justify it. I don't know. That that makes sense. I I agree. It's it. I think it's the same thing with with um, trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, people want to categorize it. It's got to it's got to reach this certain level for it to officially become trauma. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no. What matters is what you're feeling. Yeah. That's that's the most important thing. Yeah. And what are you going to do with those feelings? Are you going to process them in a way that's healthy, or are you going to run from them by numbing out with right. with something? Yeah. Um. So, you moved to Scottsdale uh, when you <laughs> were thirteen. <laughs> yeah. Um, give me some seminal moments from uh, from childhood. Things that were um, difficult, awesome, uh, changed who you were. For some weird reasons, stick out in your mind. And anything, anything you want to share? Um, well, when I I really have been thinking about this the past week or so, and I don't really like to stew on my past just because it feels self-centered. Well, you picked the wrong show. (laughs) But I I really have been forcing myself to think about it a lot. Um, And I I kind of realized that my life 
was amazing and my childhood was truly a childhood before I moved to Scottsdale and then after that it just didn't it felt just like torture until I turned 18 um and could it have been like the onset of puberty possibly but I wasn't like immediately into it when I moved it was almost entirely the fact that I the the people that I surrounded myself with were so negative when I moved here. And it, it wasn't because I intentionally surrounded myself with these people. It was because I was in a fourth grade class with, like, 20 other kids, and these were the people that I had to spend my time with. Um, so it was a very toxic environment for me in terms of... Um, were they materialistic? They were very materialistic. Um, to give you an idea, like, the woman who wrote Twilight went to my high school. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, it... Uh, it was very much Scottsdale is very much the Beverly Hills of Phoenix slash Arizona. It's extremely obnoxious, um, and we were not rich at all. We were definitely we were middle class up until I was in high school, and then we were definitely mm-hmm. lower middle. You know, I had a similar experience in grade school. It was a very small grade school. It was it was Catholic, and um, I was popular there, and. And there was almost no materialism Mm -hmm. amongst my peers. And then I went to a high school that my town shared with a super wealthy Mm -hmm. suburb next door. And all of a sudden, my group of new friends, because all of my old friends went to the Catholic high school. And I was like, I've had enough of this Catholic bullshit. Mm -hmm. Um, They were incredibly materialistic. Mm -hmm. And it was all about, you know, the most expensive stereo and the most expensive car. And Mm -hmm. I just, I remember feeling like a certain amount of sadness, like, oh, this is, this is not healthy, but you're not going to change them. And it's, you know, I liked them other than that, but Mm -hmm. it was, it was always, um, it kind of sucks being yeah. around kids that are materialistic. But uh, go ahead. I just... Uh, um, oh, no. That was definitely exactly what happened with me, too. Except I, unlike you, I don't think I had the wherewithal to remove myself from the situation and see that um, it was... These were not the people that I should try be trying to um, make friends with because they were just not worth my time. Um, I don't think I, I could have seen that at my... I don't know, like... Anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, it was, it was a huge change, I think, particularly because there were only two other kids of color in my elementary school, and one was an Indian boy, and one was, like, a very beautiful Asian girl, and I kind of, so I was, like, basically the darkest, I mean, the Indian kid was dark, but, you know, he was very smart, (laughs) yeah, he was, like, very smart and popular and whatever, (laughs) Um, and so I was a new kid, and I was brown, and so this made all sorts of questions. That's kind of shocking in Phoenix. I would, I would think no, that there's yeah. a lot more uh, Latinos. In- it's just Scottsdale. It's Phoenix is is extremely diverse, but Scottsdale is 20 miles away, and it's I think 95 percent white. Really? Yeah, it's really white. Um, I think it's changed a little now, but um, so that was. So you, you felt like you stuck out. Yeah, and not only that, because I kind of just had like a carefree, like, I'm a kid attitude, and everyone was so, trying so hard to be little adults already, and I what? wasn't wearing the right clothes, and... Was there a lot of academic pressure on kids in uh, 
Not in elementary school. That didn't really hit until middle school. Then I really felt it. I really could tell everyone around me was trying to go to Ivy Leagues. And I was like, this is not my game. That's what I felt in high school. (laughs) I was step out of this race. I I, I Um, felt smart until I got to my high school. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. I just kept my head down. I was like, I'm just going to gun through this. Um, It was, yeah. So I didn't feel academic pressure in elementary school, but there was so much racism and I had not encountered that at all up to that point. Um, so it was just startling to me. And it was also uh, racism directed at you. Yes. Okay. Like, like, give me some snapshots. Um, like the only Mexicans I know are ones that mow my lawn and, um, are you Mexican? You must be Mexican. You're Brown. Um, so that must mean you're Mexican. And like, would try to explain where I was from, and they just, like, didn't have any interest. They probably didn't even know where your country was. No, not really. Um, so, and or then, like, are you black? And, oh, and then I remember in, my, in fifth grade when I finally made an effort, or I made this huge effort to, like, transform myself between fourth and fifth grade so I could have friends. And because <laughs> I had one friend in fourth grade, and everyone else treated me like a freak. Um so in fifth grade, I was finally hanging out with some of the popular kids, and one of them told me, we we didn't hang out with you because we thought you were a Mexican, but now we know you're from Paraguay. And I was like, what does that even mean? Like, wh- what's the differentiation? It was just so stupid. Um, so, yeah, I kind of just immediately jumped into wanting to be popular and well-liked and did kind of whatever... I needed to do to change about myself so I could fit in in with the, that crowd. You know, another great episode uh, for that type of subject uh, on this podcast is the one with um, God. Why am I blanking? Uh, Loren Sulla. Uh, she t- she was a cheerleader and she talked about just compromising who she was mm-hmm. to fit in in high school and and really kind of hating herself mm-hmm. uh, for that. Does does that? kind of ring true yeah i mean i don't think i hated myself for that i think i was so deeply enmeshed in this culture of of um of standards like there were just so many standards for everything um especially beauty and i found that i just wanted to be more than anything just be like beautiful and beautiful was white so I spent so much time just like hating myself because I wasn't oh, white. That's so heartbreaking to hear. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was rough. Like I went through my journals one time, and there was this section for dreams and like, what's your dream? And it was like, I want to be blonde and have long blonde hair and fair skin, and something else stupid like a Corvette or something dumb. <laughs> um, what do you What do you think and feel as you hear yourself share that now? Oh, it just sounds stupid, but it was back then it was like that was a huge thing for me to just like hate myself so much um and something that I just intrinsically could not change um but today, do you feel like that's completely gone from you the desire? Oh, yeah okay yeah I have n- at, no at, desire whatsoever at to be what white. A- easy now I'm white <laughs> um at what age do you feel like you let go of that um wishing you didn't look the way you do? Probably when I went to college, it took a long time because high school was not was no more self esteem boosting. Like I would always get 
the bit parts in the plays, even though I had a better singing voice than some of the other girls that were auditioning because people were playing favorites. So just like I was never happy in high school, really, um, either in any way. So any uh, snapshots from uh, grade school or high school you want to share? Yeah. So uh, (laughs) this is really okay. Um, So um, in sixth grade, I Okay, well, first of all, I was put on medication when I was 10 um, for ADHD. Um, what did they give you? Adderall. Mm. And did you like it? Yes. It, it has served me very well over the years. Um, and I'm glad I was medicated at that age because I was already dealing with so much shit that it would be like immensely more difficult to have to... like teach myself to sit still in class in addition to everything else I had to deal with. Um, but so I started, I don't remember how it started, but I, middle school was terrible for me. Like I have blocked out almost all of it. Um, which is really weird. Like I literally just can't remember parts of that part of my life. Um, but so sixth grade, I started pulling out my hair and I don't even remember where it started or, like, how. Um, but it was bad. Like, I had these huge bald spots. And my mom would... Like, I finally broke down and told my mom about it. And she was really helpful. Um, but at the same time, it I didn't know what was causing it. It was obviously anxiety. Um, and I think I was actually at the time on an anti anxiety or antidepressant as well but it just obviously wasn't working and it took a long time to readjust my meds so that I just stopped like ticking and um yeah but then so after, the, meds, the meds helped with the trichotillomania yeah um but literally after that happened like I never had any problem with it again so I think it was maybe just the pressure of going into middle school that really triggered something awful (laughs) you know it's amazing the ways that we cope um (laughs) it's just amazing the ways we cope yeah we pull our hair out you know we make ourselves throw up we compulsively exercise yeah you know we gamble (laughs) just the list goes on and on it's it's unbelievable yeah and especially when you're that young to already be feeling so much anxiety it's like i should have had time to just be a kid you know when from the description of your the the new town that you were in it makes total sense to me yeah those those are pressure cookers the 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 upper middle class lily white suburbs um are terrible and, and and you know there's one in in chicago that that psychologists call the suicide belt because really? so many kids kill themselves Wow. Uh, up there. Yeah, I went to college with a couple of people from up there and they just could not relax. They're yeah. just, you know, the knees always bouncing and the uh hair know. trigger. Yeah, yeah, just um but go ahead. So, um yeah. the trichotillomania, any other snapshots? <laughs> That's a great snapshot. My snapshots are so depressing. I wish I could come up with a, a fun one. Um Let's see. High school I, um, oh, I can give you a snapshot. This is really, we're just going into like the worst parts of my life right now. But, um, so when I was 14, 
I came out as bi, and I didn't um, really know exactly what that meant, but I was kind of, like, pretty sure that I, that I liked women. And I there was this girl who was the lead in the school play, and um, she was, like, amazing. And she was 18, I was 14, so, like, she seemed like a complete grown-up to me, and I seemed felt like I still had braces and stuff. Um, so I immediately just started idolizing this person who I didn't know, and, like, we were in the musical together, so, like, we had interaction then, but it wasn't like I knew her at all. It was very upsetting. Like, it was just weird that I would be so infatuated with someone who'd, like, barely knew me. Um, but at the time, like, I was really idealizing the idea of, like, being in love and having a soulmate. And this was, like, my first, like, real feeling for someone else. So I kind of went, like, crazy with it. And literally the entire school year, That's that was my whole freshman year of, of high school, was, like, being obsessed with her. And, um... The and I got like a C in algebra because all I was doing is like scribbling notes. It was ridiculous. Um, but and then so she's going off to college at the end of. Um, yeah, she was going off to college. She's graduating. Um, but she's going in a diff- to a different state, so I wasn't going to see her anymore. And um, I decided to write her a letter saying how I felt and whatever. Even though it was the stupidest idea ever. She had a boyfriend of two years. And she was super Catholic and, like, sang in her church choir. Um, uh, Boyfriend ended up coming out as gay. And she ended up coming out as somewhat gay. So go 14-year-old me for figuring that one out. How did she react to your letter? She was really nice and supportive and, like, super cool about it. And after that, like, we started, like, instant messaging throughout high school. And she'd, like, like, give me tips on studying or like boys or whatever and it we ended up having like a pretty good friendship but that later collapsed when one year ago we reconnected and it was awful it was like the worst experience ever it wasn't the worst experience ever that was a huge overstatement because it was like we we were meeting up after all these years it was like 10 years later um and she and like the facade of what i thought she was just like shattered completely because she ended up being like this like hugely manipulative narcissist um to the point where like we're still talking and i don't want her in my life because like she just will constantly like three months will go by and then she'll text me and be like hey like she needs to be she needs to have attention on her and people in her life who want her and can't have her and stuff it was just a terrible experience but um yeah, so I just, I've, from day one, had, like, started out with really toxic romantic relationships. Um, yeah, since high school snapshot. But the rest of high school was pretty uneventful. I didn't do okay. much. <laughs> what's, the, what's the next eventful thing in your, in your life? Um, definitely college. It was, this would be when I would circle back to the eating disorder thing, um, which was my freshman year of college. And um, after after that, I think the biggest thing that happened in college was just extreme, extreme depression. Um, I kind of, there were long periods of time where I just didn't talk to people. 
Um, had a girl. <laughs> yeah. But um, you're doing it right. Yeah. But I would just shut myself off from the world and just feel bad for myself for long stretches of time. Um, that actually kind of peaked in my senior year of college because I had like half the 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 course schedule that I had years prior. So I had all of this free time. And I was working on my senior thesis, but it was still kind of just empty time. Um, and yeah, I think the whole, I don't know, I, I was at a very small liberal arts school and it was kind of just like high school part two a little bit with a lot cooler people. <laughs> um, but what were you studying? I was studying theater and I really, the thing was I moved to LA like wanting to act and uh, not moved to LA, but like I started school thinking that I was going to like drop out and become an, a full-time actress like two years in or whatever. I had really stupid plans, but, um, you're so hard on yourself. <laughs> you are so hard on well, yourself. I don't know. Like that seems so implausible. It's just like move out here and just like drop out of school and become an actress. Who am I to have a dream? I don't know. Dumb me. Well, it was another dream quickly shattered situation when I got here and kind of just started going out on auditions and just realizing how much of it was based on what I looked like. And it was just the same shit again, which is like being stereotyped. And I just wasn't all about it. Um, And I still am not all about it. And I, I also realized that writing is my stronger suit. So I decided to just stick to that and become one of two playwrights in the theater department instead of one of 48 actors or whatever. It was a very small theater department. Um, But yeah, so it was just, it was really disheartening, I think, coming here. But what did did it feel like the first time you heard your words performed? um, It was amazing. Like that was probably that was the best part of college was kind of being able to showcase my work and being like the star writer of the theater department was that really have been cool. awesome yeah it was nice i mean it was short-lived and probably ill-conceived on my part i don't think i was quite as good of a writer as i thought i was but um yeah it, it was that was kind of the first real validation i felt um because i mean i graduated with a like a 3.8 in high school or something which is just like nothing compared to the weighted grades which were like 4.5 or something so I never really felt like graduating with that GPA was a big deal and then college I didn't have a great GPA but I had written this play that got honors so it was like yeah like really the first taste of validation I had and kind of made me think well maybe I could actually do this for a living um writing and, um, yeah, but, um, at the same time I had, I had that confirmation, but then I also had the confirmation that the city is kind of like a cesspool of hate and like terrible people <laughs> sometimes. Um, so I think it depends on the circles that, does. You, that you seek out, yeah. um, because there are circles of awesome, supportive, down to earth people yeah, right yeah. alongside manipulative materialistic yeah definitely sociopaths right and yeah i think i was just kind of not sure what i wanted to do so i went after i graduated i went back home for a year and um 
I mean, there's a snapshot there, but I don't really know if it's relevant or like oh. it's a little distant at this point. Um, but share it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when I got home, I think I'm leaving out a huge part part of my whole childhood, which was that um, my sister's um, has a learning. My sister has a learning disability, and um, growing up was really really difficult. Um, she for her for you for all of us. Um, she was really violent at an early age, and she would throw these tantrums where she would just scream and cry and kick and like hit people, and we would have to like hold her down in public spaces and just oh like my God. just like wait it out. And sometimes it would be like an hour, and we were like in the school parking lot, just like trying oh, to get my sister wow. to calm down. Um, this went on like up until high school. Um, and that kind of was, I mean, she was ultimately like, she, she turned out okay, but well, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. But, um, it was really tough. Like when she was going through puberty, it was like, everything was like extreme. And I remember my mom would always have me videotape when my sister threw tantrums or whatever they're called when she had like an episode and they would often consist of just my sister just like throwing things at my mom and um sometimes she would have like a web like sometimes she'd have like a knife and she would be trying to cut my mom and sometimes it would be like um like like scratching or it was just very unsettling thing to video. Was it a uh, like a chemical imbalance, or did something yeah. traumatic happen to her emotionally? Or um, what? Well, it's been determined she has like fetal alcohol syndrome, and she also she was the last of nine children, and they were all. So, I don't know. Her her mom was most likely on drugs, like when she conceived most of her children. Yeah. So she, who knows exactly what is chemically mm-hmm. going on there, but yeah, it was really bad. Um, and it took a long time to get her med stabilized, too, because she kept getting misdiagnosed. Um, so that was just like a constant thing in my life. And I always felt like I really had to be the normal one in, in the family because... I like how you were just going to skip over this. <laughs> I know. Like, this isn't important. I, I was like, I should probably go back to that. Um, yeah, um, I, I really... Felt oh, like, and then there's that thing where I felt like I had to be the parent and my sister was dangerously violent. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, that kind of sucked because when I was at school, I was not happy and I wanted kind of a safe haven to go to when I went home. That was just never possible. Like, there would always be my sister would be having a tantrum. Sometimes there was quiet, but it was often the quiet before the storm. And... Um, so yeah, it was not, you didn't have a safe place. Ideal. Yeah. I didn't really feel like I had a safe place. I mean, my room was, was very safe, but I could only lock myself in there for so long before my mom was like, she's like starting her tantrum again or whatever. But, um, I'm really kind of rationalizing this a lot as I'm saying it. Like it was a really traumatic experience. Um, especially the times when my mom's life was literally in danger and we called the police and my sister was like holding her at knife point, like shit got real. And that was extremely hard for me to deal with. And And she was two years younger than you? Four. Four. Okay. Um, 
that was terrible. And there was another time where she threatened to, she's tried to commit suicide so many times. And the first time, I think the biggest time was when she was 12 or 13 and we were staying in a hotel in Minnesota and there was like some sort of a window situation where you could, you could like put your hand out the second floor window and then she found a way to like lift it all the way up and so she was like standing on the balcony and gonna jump and that was really scary too um it kind of always I always kind of just felt like everything was going to be a crisis like things were going to be um like you could never relax yeah so it's always kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop I guess um when some when things were going well um so I think maybe that influenced my view of life and, and and stuff in terms of like I have to survive and not I'm I'm living I'm surviving and maybe constantly. Peace and happiness aren't just meant for just aren't meant for me. Right. Yeah. If something good does happen, it it's fleeting. Right. Yeah. Um, but I don't. But I don't think my mom was meaning to put any unnecessary stress or anything on me. I think it just we didn't have any help, and we had to deal with my yeah. sister. And I mean, we just had to do it. So I don't think it was. I I mean, I wasn't required to help out, but it's like when when that was going on, there's no way I was just going to sit by and like put my mom in danger or something. So. Um, and it wasn't always that bad. Like, we had good times as fa- as a family, too. But overwhelmingly, it was not great. Um, but, yeah, that's why theater was cool because I could, you know, I could stay after school and then we'd have rehearsal till 6 or 7. And I could just, like, chill with people and not have to think about home stuff. But, yeah, it was, um, it was fairly traumatic, I guess. Um but I know people who've had like way worse it childhood. Matter. It doesn't matter. It's the combination of, of all of that stuff. Yeah. That's one of the worst things we can do is compare, you know, well, they coped with it. You know, what happened to them on paper wasn't as bad. That's like one of the worst traps we can we can fall into. It, yeah. it kept me from healing around certain topics for decades. Mm-hmm. Decades. Yeah. So I... I can't say it enough on this podcast to your feelings are valid Mm -hmm. they are valid word um um this is kind of just bouncing around but um i do think that there was a lot of times when my feelings were invalidated recently and and it was it was by my mother and and so it was kind of like um a rem- maybe a reminder or like an indication that perhaps in the past she had also been invalidating my feelings and not realizing that she was um mostly because she kind of she doesn't want me to say i have a mental illness and she doesn't like the word or the phrase or the idea of it being a mental illness um she likes to think of it like more as a condition or um something that outside um sources are causing it's circumstantial to us. right and so when i try to explain to her like on the phone that i'm just depressed she's like well i can understand why you're depressed and then she'll list all the reasons and i'm like no it's not that it's i just you know want to kill myself um 
which doesn't, I don't actually ever really want to kill myself, but like, you know, I have... You don't want to be alive. I sometimes voice that that and not realize what the actual intent of what I'm saying is. It's just a feeling that I have. It's just it's like, fair, yeah, fair I don't to... want to be on this yes. earth at this moment. Um, so, uh, yeah, so she would, she's just constantly been not wanting to acknowledge the fact that I actually am like that I have a an, an illness and like I'm going to have to deal with the, the rest of my life. So that's just something I was thinking about. I don't know. It's I think that's random. important. I think that's important. Yeah. It's probably terrifying to your mom on top of your sister having issues. You know, the yeah. idea that you may have something that's beyond um, her control. Yeah. Is probably terrifying to her. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure, and I know that she really tries to not um, put unnecessary pressure on me. But every time I go home, I constantly resume. I resume my uh, assume my role as the kind of you know, like when you have an Oreo and you break it apart and then you like lick off the frosting and then you put it back together. That's like the frosting is me, and then my sister and my mom are the cookies, and I just feel like I'm barely holding them together, but, and I'm constantly having like the thread of like them tearing apart again. So it's just like. So are you saying you cause diabetes? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. That's pretty profound. That's uh, that's um, that's quite an image, and that makes. That makes sense to me. Uh, you know, I, I relate very much because my my brother um, was high maintenance as a kid mm-hmm. and um, lots of fights between him and, and my mom. And my mode from, I remember at an early age, I just remember thinking whatever, no matter what happens around me, I'm not going to cause a problem. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to be the good kid. Yeah. And that had bad re- repercussions you know in some yeah. ways it was good but in, in a lot of ways i didn't learn how to confront i didn't learn how to set boundaries i yeah. didn't learn how to feel i didn't learn how to you know identify my needs and, and on mm-hmm. and on and on do any of those ring true for you yes all of them yeah yes. and who wouldn't Pretty be depressed much. when your your view of the world is that it's this thing to be endured um rather than this thing that you can thrive in mm-hmm yeah, and that, and I also kind of think that I'm genetically just wired. Because actually, it's interesting because my mom says the same thing that she says about mental illness, that she says about my sexuality, which is that, well, you didn't have a male figure growing up, and that it that means that's part of the reason why you don't you can't trust men. It's because like, you know, you haven't had a good man in your life growing up and it's like no i think i was just hardwired to like generally mostly prefer women like i think that's just like i knew that when i was like six um but my mom kind of always wants to put like nurture over nature and i think a lot of depression well at least my depression feels nature like it feels like it's kind of always been there and was dormant until it wasn't Mm -hmm. dormant um but i definitely think that environmental factors affected me in ways that I maybe didn't or haven't like examined Mm -hmm. as an adult but uh have you oops hold on one second 
our thing just made weird sounds. Hello, hello. Check. Check. Our audio just had a little glitch. Um, so what's the next big portion After of that. your life or seminal moment or issue? Um, so I th- sometime in college, I think, I don't remember when my first job was. Well, when I lost all the weight for when not for my eating disorder, when I had the, the really bad eating disorder my freshman year, I lost a lot of weight and I started doing modeling because it was an extra way to, to make money. Um, and I was like the right size for it. Um, so I started doing that and then I put on weight after I recovered and I wasn't a viable candidate to do like regular modeling, which isn't to say like I was fat. It was just to say like, I wasn't a size zero. You weren't emaciated. (laughs) Yeah. So I couldn't do the catalog stuff. Um, and, but this was really, it was really kind of fun and a great way to escape school and whatever. Um, so I started looking for kind of alt modeling jobs, which are usually like, um, a lot of like burlesque type, um, like their suicide girls were huge for a while and people were doing, were copying that style of like tattooed up girls, um, and, and like the glamour modeling, uh, glamour nudes somehow became really popular between like 2007 and 2009. And so I started, um, considering doing that. And, um, one summer I really wanted to go to San Francisco, like really badly. And, and you were living where at this point? Um, I was going to school in LA and living in the dorms. Okay. Um, what school did you go to? Occidental. Okay. Um, and so I, I really wanted to go be with this person who lived in San Francisco and, um, in order to do that, I would need to have like a large nest egg situation. Um, you wanted to go live with this person? Um, I was going to like rent an apartment there and like get a job and be there for a few months over the summer. Was this uh, somebody who you were romantically or platonic? Okay. Um, well, at that point, we were just platonic because she had a girlfriend, but we were definitely, like, we're, she was, up until recently, like, probably my best friend, so she, it, it all worked out well, but at the time, it was, like, romantic. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, I don't think that was really relevant, but whatever. Um, she, so, or me, <laughs> um... I decided to take a few of the glamour modeling gigs, and they paid okay, but I needed to make more. Um, so I decided to just like do something crazy and spontaneous and um, do a porn shoot. Um, but I had all these rules for myself in place, which was no on-screen penetration, and I wasn't going to do anything without protection, and. I just had like all these rules in place, so I thought everything would be okay because I have these control variables and um, things are going to be fine. Um, and the way porn works is you get sucked in and they say, oh, it's just a paid audition. And so you do that. And then like halfway through the shoot, they're like, well, if you do this, you know, you'll make like a grand. Like we'll we'll pay you a grand in addition to the 300 we paid you for the audition 
And then it becomes like, oh, so you're doing a little more than you had told yourself you're going to do. And then it becomes like, oh, this is nice. I just made $1,300. I've never made that much on a shoot, but that was an example of in my fantasy what I look back on and think my porn days were like. Um, So I did that, and it was really shitty. Like, the experience just I felt awful afterwards, and I didn't feel like I had done it for, like, the right reasons. Um, which was no reason. It was. I, w- I was going to say what what. It was spontaneous, but it was also because I really needed the money, and I, I wanted to move. Like I wanted to leave from school to go directly to San Francisco, so um, I wasn't going to be able to go home at all. So I had to like get all my stuff together. Um, Have you seen the uh, documentary Hot Girls Wanted? No, I've seen it on Netflix. I have a lot of issues with like documentaries about sex workers, so it's I haven't watched that one yet. But well, it's it's a mostly about girls that have just turned eighteen and how they're they're. Um, highly in demand be- mm-hmm. because they haven't done anything yet but as right. soon as they do something their value goes down because they're no longer first timers right. doing this and but they've put all their eggs into this basket now they're living away from home so they wind up having to take these degrading jobs mm-hmm. to keep doing this thing that they thought was a good idea mm-hmm. and it's it is really hard to watch but mm-hmm. i think it should it should be required viewing for every person male and female that turns 18 mm-hmm. uh cuz it bursts a lot of the bubbles that yeah. people have about um the that line of work being glamorous yeah definitely um i mean actually now that i'm thinking back i don't know if i felt so terrible about that first job I think I did. I think I was kind of riding on the thrill of making that much money in one in like an hour. Um, and what if you don't mind me asking, what was it that you said you weren't going to do that you did decided I mean, to do? I actually didn't really do a whole lot. Like I I never had sex on on screen like I haven't ever done that. Um, but it was just kind of like a lot of just weird like. Like. I just wasn't, I was just acting, like, I was literally just a different person. And so I was not um, okay with the part about me just completely transforming myself into this different person so I could make a certain amount of money and feel weird about it afterwards. In what way did you have to transform yourself? Into somebody who was enjoying what they were doing? Yeah, I mean, I mean, just um, in terms, I mean, I came from an acting perspective, so I treated it like I established this new identity and you know they ask you questions about yourself and you have to have answers ready um so i kind of decided on what my backstory was before i got in there and um came up with stuff that you thought they would want to hear yeah and um just like was not my like any version of myself so that was unsettling to me i think too that i could somehow just like become this did you have a little voice in your mind as you were doing it saying what are you doing 
I guess. I mean, not really, actually. Like, I kind of just, like, was in character. <laughs> I was a very method actress. Um, it wasn't until really after that I kind of, when I had to, like, sit and think about the day that I'd had that I was kind of just like, oh, this is probably not a good idea. Um, but anyway, but that was an isolated thing, and I didn't really do any um, porn again until my scene well i i was doing like nude modeling but nude modeling is very different like i mean i've learned bad and good situations with that as well but it's much safer and um i mean than porn porn is i whatever i mean it really depends if if you know the person who's the producer or whatever i mean i think you can have a safe experience as like a newcomer in porn but um it's not particularly safe in terms of you're just driving up to this random location and taking off your clothes in front of someone you you don't even know sometimes like, that sounds terrifying yeah <laughs> so that's not exactly safe in ter- but like when you're working with a photographer you like have the authority to ask them more questions and it feels like you're screening them a little bit as well and i liked that experience um also, it was just fun. Like, I didn't ever usually get copies of the pictures, so I didn't have to, like, obsess over myself. I could just, like, have fun for a couple hours and sometimes work with other models. And um, I highly recommend nude modeling to all <laughs> younger people um, who are interested in that line of work but don't want to go through hell. Um, that's a fun way to kind of so you found explore it, your boundaries. You found it to be uh, empowering and liberating? Yeah, that was, yeah, it was great. Um, but so I did some of that and, and then I didn't do porn again until my senior year of college where I was in a similar situation where I needed to make money in order to get an apartment here and I didn't have a job yet. So I needed to like make money. Um, and then I did another shoot and it wasn't with anyone that I knew, but it was with people that. I had done a lot of research on beforehand because I didn't want the same situation as I had last time, which was just like a total feeling of like, like after I shot, like it was completely out of my hands. Like, I don't know what they did with it. Um, so I went to someone like a company that actually had like their own website and I was going to be like one of the girls on the website, um, in a featured video for that week. So I wasn't, they weren't going to like leave it up. I mean, they were going to leave it up, but like I wasn't going to be featured for that long. So I didn't feel that my identity safety was compromised. Um, and it's weird cause I never like cared about my identity being compromised, like, or me being found out in terms of nude modeling, just because like I maybe just because I knew that even though people could have their own assumptions, the only thing that was happening on that shoot was just like hanging out naked. Whereas with porn, it was like, this is like definitely a clear um, case of this girl doing this terrible thing. So it's like, whatever. Um, and so the second shoot. You're talking about in your, in your own opinion that it's a terrible thing or in terms of. Wh- in terms what? of other people's judgments. Okay. Other pe- societies, society deems porn still as like not great um and i at, at this point i still i have that opinion too like it's terrible um and uh so yeah my second shoot was just like 
I kind of agreed to what I what we were going to do beforehand and um but this site was like way more known so like the <clears throat> I was like filled with anxiety about someone finding my video finding the video and that made the shoot That seems a little... like a bad combination yeah. <laughs> you know getting, getting into it hoping that it never gets seen right I, I know people that do that with with pilots yeah that, that'll be like yeah i'll do this pilot but it's a piece of shit i'll yeah. make a nice chunk of money and thank thank god it's it's never right. going to get and picked it'll up it'll be put in a storage unit somewhere um there's one guy i know who actually cracked a bottle of champagne when he heard the pilot didn't get picked up because oh, it was wow. it was so excited yeah oh no um but go ahead yeah i i mean i don't know about my performance maybe it was good like maybe it would have been something i'd have been proud of later but i just didn't want any like thing to do with it after it was done so are you saying that your performance in it could have changed it from something that you were ashamed of into something that you were not ashamed of? Possibly. I mean, I think if I was in a position where I was, um, it, if I knew what I knew now that I knew then and I was in that same terrible position, that I would have made so many more changes to the way I approached um, getting work in the industry. How so? Um, in terms of knowing like what my rights were as as a performer and like doing background checks on people and um, really researching the, the people I was working with, um, which actually is the background check thing, but more so just understanding what I was getting into. Um, and where you could speak up. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I didn't feel power if I didn't feel powerless. I think it would have been a positive experience probably. But again, with um, the machine of it all, um, ultimately at the end of the day when you're 25 and you're just like spit out, it's a terrible feeling for young women who have no previous job experience um, other than porn and like are thrown into the world expected to just find a job that's okay with you having had four or five years as a porn star. Um, so I don't think ultimately it's a great industry, um, but also the state of society just doesn't really accept porn performers as, um, real people. So, um, I would say, uh, all sex workers in general, yeah. they, I mean, if you look at the way the cops treat crimes against mm -hmm. sex workers, it, it's horrifying. Yeah. Um, I think my, the point of that story was that, um, I did that, and I ended up not being able to stay in L.A., so I went home for a year. And then I moved back um, to L.A., and that's when I just, like, didn't have any money because I just really wanted to get out of the house. I was sick of living at home, and I wanted to, like, start my new life. So I moved out here with, like, no money. Um, and I kind of told my mom that I had money, but I really didn't have any money. Um, and I was kind of hoping to just get by in the nude modeling, but it didn't end up panning out because it's kind of work that comes and goes you don't really know if you're gonna be able to work one month or whatever um and what does a typical shoot pay like two hundred dollars pretty decent is that for all day a couple hours just for a few hours okay yeah um so yeah that's pretty decent pay but it's not like regular enough to yeah i mean you'd have to work, get it three four times a week to be able to yeah. support yourself out here so that was not an option anymore so I started looking into um, 
escorting. But it was really, it was interesting because at this, at this time, at this moment in time, there was this bizarre phenomenon of the sugar baby, which was What's being that? born. Um, the, a sugar baby is someone who, um, has an arrangement with an older man and they, the older man, they agree on like some sort of a situation where they'll meet a few times a month and in return the man gives her a monthly like bonus or not bonus monthly stipend allow- allowance it's yeah. called um and so there's this whole internet phenomenon of sugar babies that was coming up and i was just so fascinated by that so i decided i wanted to try to do that which I would not recommend to anyone. I think that to meet up with someone a few times a month and have to act like... If you didn't like the materialism of your high school, <laughs> how are you How yeah. are you going to... How are you going to like the fucking version of that? Yeah, no. It was it was terrible, but I didn't have a choice. Like, sex work really, it it's born out of necessity. And it's not something that I, I felt that I had a choice about. I had... Um, successfully landed a part-time job but i needed um supplemental income and it wasn't going to come from my family um and i didn't have savings so this was the only option for me and um and had you and you had you tried getting regular jobs you know at the going to the mall or anything like that or did you feel of course yeah i mean like i it wasn't like i was unemployable i had a BA and I know, but some people smart. look down. Some people look down their nose at uh, the you know the job market. If it's if they have a college education, you know they'll be like, I'm not going to go work at uh, you know the. Yeah, no, I had no such notions. I it's the just, gap or whatever. It's just hard to find a job here in general, especially if you're at twenty something, because all the jobs are already taken by people. Um, your age who are better at it. So um, it it was just a terrible market. Like I really tried for months and months to find a job. And when I finally found the part-time job, it was very odd hours. So it was hard to find a second job to, pi- to put on top mm-hmm. of that one. And I wasn't just going to quit the part-time job. So it was a lot of juggling. Um, yeah, of course I applied to like Starbucks and like Target and like I think Costco is even at one time possibility, but they, I never got any response from those. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was I had to pay rent, um, and yeah, so that was. So you looked into the sugar. The I sugar looked into and- that, and that ended up just being way too much time and energy spent on a very small return, which I had one successful sugar baby experience so so what happens is there's kind of it was a tumblr community like there was like um a sugar baby tag and everyone under the sugar baby tag um talked about their experiences and talked about which websites were good to look for sugar daddies and stuff like that and um very few of these women were getting paid um the amount that other sugar babies had people thinking they were getting paid, which was um, like $10,000 a month. And that just didn't happen for people. I mean, $1,000 a month, I think, would even be a stretch. 
Um, wow. Yeah, it was not a, a... And that and that would be for meeting up with this person how many times? Like two or three times a month and for however many hours at, at a time. So if you're spending the night with someone two or three times a month and you're going to get $1,000 a month, like, is a raw deal. Um, but I thought that that was, like, the society, societally acceptable, socially acceptable version of escorting so i decided to try that and i had one successful one and it wasn't successful it was just like a functioning relationship um a functioning sugar baby daddy relationship but he was so like the thing with like sugar daddies is that they're they're trying to like say that they have more money than they do and so um like this guy like all of his pictures were him. This is like really stupid detail, but um, all of Let his- Let me guess, standing <laughs> in front of something expensive? Yeah. And he had like a really nice car and he was in front of, he's in the drive, a really long driveway of this house. And all, of course it was like photoshopped and from five years ago. And, um, and then in person, he ended up, he lives in this really nice house, but it's in the middle of fucking Agora Hills. And it's like, he lives with five other dudes that are his age, like in their forties, like, like in, in a That's mansion weird. with like five 40 year old guys. And you're like, what is Are your they deal? all like sugar daddies? No, it was a very strange situation. Um, yeah, so that was that is bizarre. That was that. And I think the most I got out of him was a pea coat. He took me to Macy's once. A what bought, coat? A pea coat. A P E A coat. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I think what once he paid me two hundred dollars, and we met over the course of like two months, and that was all I got out of it. It was terrible. And and how many times did you have to have sex with him? I don't think we had. Well, yeah, we, I probably had to have sex with him, but. I mean, he was, like, not bad-looking, so it was, like, ended up being, like, an okay situation, but, like, two or three times. And I never enjoyed the time we spent together. It was just, like, you know, he's not, it's, it could, it could have been worse. Where do you go in your, are you able to be present when you are having sex with somebody who's giving, that you're being paid for, and you know in your mind you wouldn't do this in your regular life if there was... You wouldn't be doing this if there wasn't X amount of money. Well, I'm present in the sense that I'm putting on the guise of another person. And I mean, I, I styled myself totally differently. I wore a different perfume. I had a different set of lingerie when I was for when I was working versus when I was just being myself. Um, and I had a different backstory. I had a kid like in my identity so it was was that like, was that uh, to hopefully get more money from them by having a kid no no it wasn't any sort of it was more just like a, a flake device like if i really didn't want to see one of my clients that i ended up having like one client for a year and a half and he would be really needy and clingy sometime and i sometimes and i would just be like can't where am <laughs> my daughter like all day that's pretty smart it was and i was i, I had a really good but um so i would put all those things between me and the client so i did have i mean i was present but i i was present and acting as someone else so i didn't as acting as a persona acting at a persona so it wasn't mm -hmm. 
it's not entirely present, I don't think. And usually I'd had like some weed or like something to drink or something too, and that helps. But yeah. But I mean, I think also the escorting part, like when I did that as opposed to, to the sugar baby thing, um, it was so much less or so, so much less stressful um, because you had a time limit. And then after that time, you're like, okay, like, bye. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter if they're finished. Again. Like, yeah. you don't have to deal with, like, Did you, you have walk so- out. somebody protecting you? No, 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 no. That sounds um, dangerous. No, well, I kind of wised up after my sugar baby experience because I had had such rotten luck with these terrible dudes and i learned that i should be screening these guys and before i like meet them at their house um and i started becoming like finding the escort community like basically what i would do is i would like go on back page and i would look at all the escort ads and see what they were doing and then sometimes i would like text the girls and like ask them for advice um were they helpful yeah like surprisingly like it was it's very competitive, like, because there are so many young, beautiful women here that are making thousands and thousands of dollars from um, this kind of work. And so it was constantly, I felt like I was in competition, but sometimes someone would reach out and you'd become friends or something. But, um, um, no, so I think when I started escorting, I forget what this train of thought was stemming from, um like time we were talking about like the time limit was helpful mm-hmm. um and w- 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 oh dangerous that was you oh okay. yes yeah, yeah was anybody protecting you um no no one was protecting me and i think that was really shitty at the beginning because i had no idea what i was doing to the point where i didn't know that the client was always supposed to pay in cash and i ended up getting a couple checks and they ended up bouncing and then the client would just disappear. And that was a terrible experience. But I was really stubborn. Like, also the guys were kind of stupid that were doing this because they show like, they took me to their home address. So, like, I knew where they lived and I knew what their job was. Sometimes I even knew what their last name was. So I kind of already had this information about them. But, like, if I couldn't track them down and, like, get them to pay me like there was no way to be paid at that point so it was like really stupid that i was just taking checks if from you, like random people if you had been uh, a vindictive person uh you certainly if they their check bounced you could have made their lives miserable oh i did yeah. i did with one guy and it was i was because it was the second time that had happened to me with with the second guy and i thought i had smartened up and i thought this guy was legit and he ended up not being legit um, and I was just on the warpath. And so I like parked outside of his house with the lights on and his kids and his wife were inside. Oh my God. And I just sat there and, um, he's like, you have to go. Like the neighbors are going to call. Like we have neighborhood watch. And I was like, where's my, you know, wh- however much you owe me. And, and he's like, I'll get it to you tomorrow. I have to go to the bank and stuff. And I'd be like, okay, well, I'll wait here while you go to the bank. Um, and then... And then, like, sometimes his wife would text me and be like, you bitch, like, you're fucking my man, and, like, you dumb slut. And I was like, well, I'll go away if he pays me, like, and... 
That sounds really tumultuous. It was crazy. Really, really <laughs> not worth the money. No, at that point. But he. But the thing was, he owed me like like fourteen hundred dollars. What would uh, a typical? What would you make for a typical uh, session? Is that what you would call mm-hmm. it? Um, I was. I also like. I was so bad at marketing myself. Like I was just terrible at this whole thing. I was just bad at it. Um, from a business perspective, because I didn't know how to market myself without, um, uh, I don't know. I didn't want to overexpose myself because I didn't want to risk getting caught. But I also, um, I should have just like put in the money to get better pictures and I would have gotten so much more work. But anyway, um, so I would charge, I oh, I think, I don't know if I overcharged. The thing that's cool with escorting is that you you can set your price and, um, and like, that's just what it is. And when people try to bargain with you and stuff, you're just like, no, if you want like $75 ho, like go on back page, like that's not me. Um, but yeah, no. So my price was 400. So I was, I, well, I also, that kind of put me out of the way of, of really sleazy assholes because anything like below like the 300 mark is just like a lot of really shady business um not necessarily i guess i think it depends if you're like going through an agency or something mm-hmm. you might they have agents yeah that, like the book escorts yeah, yeah i yeah. guess why not there's agents for everything else yeah no um there's escort agencies they're not like overt about the fact that they're escort agencies mm-hmm. they usually have like some sort of a like you can't just escort if you work for them you also have to be like like you might have to do porn or something like on the side so they look like a legit operation um but so yeah so i set my own price and i kind of like didn't know if i was setting the right price or anything would you ever encounter somebody that was willing to pay you the amount of money that you wanted but you were so physically repulsed by them that you couldn't go through with it or would you just go through with it and check out um i well i was really only making myself available to people who were willing to go through a verification process so that kind of eliminated like really actually i don't know why it would eliminate gross dudes because it didn't and i did 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 it not matter to you what the person looked like um i I, it's a business like you really you don't think about it as like would i ever sleep with this person in real life it's just like okay you're giving me money i I, I realize that it's not a you know that escorts aren't going to only sleep with people they would that that they would sleep with in in real life i realize that that you know they're doing something they're being paid for something that that they otherwise wouldn't normally do, mm-hmm. but I just never understood how you could, if there was just something absolutely repellent about somebody, could you go through with that? How do you, what do you do? Do you, that just always puzzled me, I guess. I mean, it's like if you're at Coachella and you have to go to the bathroom and you have to use the porta potties, like. <laughs> That is fantastic. <laughs> like, you just do it. You just do it and you get it over with. But it's your body. Yeah, but it's also kind of just like, once you know, like, once you know 
the things like the right things to do in each set like in each session and what works it kind of just becomes like a chain reaction of events that you kind of just you do step one step two step three what, step are, four. what are those steps um if you're I, comfortable talking i i don't know like I think it varied with each of my clients, but I was really intuitive. So sex for me is just really easy, um, and and I enjoy it. I mean, obviously, I didn't enjoy it when I was when I was working as a sex worker, but like I knew what men liked and I knew how to do it correctly, and so just kind of without fail, it would go well every time. In other words, you get them to orgasm quickly, right? And and that, I would imagine, was your goal, to yeah. get the, them to orgasm as quickly as possible. Well, I mean, then they'd probably redo it more than once in a session, mm. too. Like, there's no limit on what goes on. It's just like, I mean, I set my own limits in terms of, like, what I will and won't do. But in terms of, like, how many times we do mm. whatever, it's what however many times they can. So. And what would you, what were the things that you wouldn't do? And were there ever times that you did the things you said you weren't going to do? Um, I was, I mean, I think kissing for me was something I really didn't like because just in general, I'm not a big fan of kissing men. Um, but also just because it seemed kind of intimate to me still. I think kissing is incredibly intimate. So, I ultimately at the beginning I didn't really want to, but I ended up doing that with my long-term clients. So I don't think that I did. You hate it? Um. Yeah. Yeah. I hated every second of it. Did you Did you find yourself beating yourself up, saying, "Why did I agree to do that?" I mean, when I'm in the mindset of I, there's no other choice for me. I really need this money. I kind of just. My, I believe, like my inside, my inside head voice. You at sit, the door. You, you sit on the Coachella shitter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I just get it done. Um, but no, I mean, I didn't do, um, like, I didn't do like Greek, as they call it. What's that? Um, which is, is anal. anal. <laughs> yeah. They call I don't it know Greek. Why they call it Greek. I well, still the, the, I know. guess they were into butt sex. Um, yeah, so I didn't do, I didn't do that and I didn't do anything like unprotected. So like, even if it was oral, like it, you'd have to be protected. Um, and I, and would guys try to get it to be unprotected? Yeah. And ultimately, like I've been saying that a lot, but I think that if they were willing to go through like the testing and stuff and I had been seeing them for a while, then I would be okay with it because you really can't contract a lot from oral if the person doesn't have like herpes and you know mm -hmm. that they don't because they've shown you their tests like so that like for i would make exceptions yes for certain clients um, mostly for people that i had established a trust with but no i don't think i would have ever compromised on like like anything that i wouldn't do in my real life mm -hmm. i'm not going to do um in my work life uh, did so. you ever have a female client? No, I don't think that happens. I think that's a movie tale, a, a fairy tale <laughs> thing. I don't think it exists. I wish it existed, but um, no. What do you? Oh, actually, I have an addendum to that. The guy, my longest term client, who I was, who I saw for, 
I think for the whole two, not the whole two years, but almost the entire time I was escorting, um, he was needy as hell, and he basically thought I was his girlfriend. So really, he he legitimately thought that I was his girlfriend, and he would constantly ask me to spend the night, and I somehow ended up not having to spend the night with him. But he was he was a nice guy, like he was a decent human. But like I, there was there's a line between like work and and personal stuff and he just didn't know where that line was um and so he was continually like making me meet his friends and stuff and it was just uncomfortable like he would have his friends over and then i'd come by and he'd ha- he'd be like and he, and he wouldn't say that he was paying you to them no he would just say hey this is my girl and like introduce me oh that's so sad and it was just really uncomfortable for me because i felt like he wasn't respecting the fact that what we were sharing was like a transaction a transaction and not i wasn't part of his actual life in terms of you know the weird. the sex workers that i've talked to the thing that they always say is that the the guys that come to them more than anything they're looking for companionship mm-hmm. they're looking for somebody to see them and hear them Right. And feel them. And it's really an emotional thing yes. that is sexualized. Yeah. I mean, you get that. And, and well, what I was getting to with the the female client is that um, he had this friend who was like, they hooked up a lot, but um, she lived in New York, so she was never around. And she was coming to visit, and he had been telling her about me and really wanted us to meet and have a threesome. And I was like, I don't know. Like, is this the same guy that pretended you were yes. his girlfriend? Okay. And I was just like, this is weird because like she doesn't know that he pays me, and he just thinks like I'm is whatever side piece over here, and then she's his side piece over on the other side of the country. So it was just like weird. It was, um, and I mean, I did it because like he was paying me, and I think he paid me like a lot more to do that. So I was like, yeah, but. That was just weird because it was like she was intimately connected to him and and had real feelings and emotions for him. And we were all in the same bed together. And it was just like, I feel like I was also crossing their boundaries, like Mm -hmm. their own intimacy, because I was like this unwanted, not unwanted. I was just like this weird, like foreign body interloper. Yeah, yeah, in their actual real life, and it was very strange. And did he want the two of you to interact, or yeah. was it? Yeah, like he like was like, okay, you girls have fun, and then I'll come in later. And and what was that like? Was that easier than being with a man for yeah, you? Yeah, so much easier. But <laughs> <laughs> she was just really cool too. Like I think, but and was she into it, or was she doing it for him? No, she was into it. Um, did that not feel like work to, then for you? She wanted to fly me out to uh, Brooklyn. To just like hang out with her for a week. <laughs> that was like. Did you consider it? I did, but. It comes with him attached, though, at some point, probably. It, that and I didn't want to become any more enmeshed in his life. And she still didn't know that I was a paid woman. So that just would have been all kinds of awkward. But um, yeah. And I did have a physically repulsive guy. I think we talked about him mm-hmm. briefly. Um he was my other... Lo- I only had three clients at the end. Um, 
and I didn't have many more than that to begin with. Like, um, would you prefer a client who is physically repulsive or personality repulsive? I mean, equally, it's going to be a disgusting thing to me. <laughs> so I don't have a preference because like everything is just at the base level of just being terrible. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think I, I don't know. I, I, at least if a person is civil and shows empathy toward me, like even if it's not me, it, even if it's a persona, it, it feels like some sort of a, a pay, a payoff at the end. Um, so that's kind of a nice added bonus, but it's never, it's never a a consolation. It's just kind of a oh, sometimes they'll be a jerk, sometimes they'll be disgusting, and either way, it's just going to be a terrible psychic experience. <laughs> like, what kind of a toll do you think it's it's taken on you, mentally, emotionally, uh, sexually? Um, I think I was able to. At the beginning, it was really tumultuous because I was trying to find my my client base and also try to figure out how being a sex worker worked, and that was really rough and I had some really awful experiences um, at the beginning. But towards the end, it was kind of just routine, um, and that's not to say it still wasn't emotionally taxing at the end, but I think towards the end, it, it became more tolerable with the way you view other people you know let's say you had a day where you had to go work mm -hmm. to make money would the way that you would interact the rest of the day with other people in your life be affected by what you had done did it make you want to pull away from people did it make you want to not be around men i mean is what that's a does that make sense, the yeah, question yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm asking? Totally. Um, well, I mean, when I was escorting, at least the the last year I was escorting, I had a 9-to-5 job. So it was like if I saw someone on a Tuesday night, then the next morning I was at work at 9 a.m. So I didn't really have a lot of time to feel, like, icky about it. Um, because I just had to go right into other work mode after getting off of getting out of the that work mode. Um, but yeah, um, it definitely in terms of my personal relationships, it was very taxing um, because I couldn't have at the time what I wanted, which was a committed monogamous relationship with someone. Um, when I was physically involved with other people and obviously unable to tell them that I was physically involved with other people. Um, so in that way, it definitely affected my, my, the way I intera interacted with others. And also, like, it's weird to go home to someone who's significant to you after having spent time doing something that is really disgusting to you and you feel like your body has been violated i mean even after you take a shower and you sit down with someone you love it's kind of just like they don't really know exactly what i've just done and that was difficult um especially because i really longed to talk to talk to someone and to be to be emotionally close to other people 
And I didn't know how to do that when I was transitioning from sex work to regular life. Um, so I just didn't have any emotional connections, basically, those entire two years. Or the ones that I did were very chaotic. And I think that's something I'm realizing, actually, that's apart from sex work, that I just, like, am bad at relationships. But... Um, are you attracted to chaotic people? Yes. And that's been something that I'm definitely growing out of because I've just had all the chaos I can take at this point. Um, but definitely when I'm already living, having this chaotic lifestyle, as as muted as it may be because I don't really talk to anyone about it, it's still that part, that chaos influences my real life chaos and if I have a boring life then I um I felt like I had to bring in outside like I had to have drama going going on in my regular life um which is was really dumb and I think that was just part of being young too I was like 22 when I started no I was 23 but I was still fairly new to LA and as an adult and I didn't really know how to interact with people like my first, I'm really just going into way too much detail. Um, but my first, my, the first year I moved here, I like, um, started seeing this director and it was like, it was strange because I kind, I was never attracted to fame before, but it was like, so I knew it wasn't that, but I also just wondered why I was attracted to this kind of toxic man who really had no emotional availability and it was it was because like I was I wanted someone who was established in the industry to tell me if my work was good and like I wanted validation for that and that turned into validation via sex and then validation via you know does he text me back or whatever and so was he a director of uh non-pornographic stuff or pornographic no no, no. he was like a, a feature film director okay um and what, what was the work that you wanted him to validate um i was writing a bunch of different scripts at oh, that okay. time and it was just like the wrong way to approach anyone to do anything but like that wasn't really i wasn't expecting anything to come out of it i just wanted validation because i was in the city by myself and i didn't know if i was supposed to be here at all and i was doing these terrible things i didn't want to be doing and i just wanted to know that it, that someone could justify the fact that i'm here for a reason and that i'm talented or tell me something like that so i was just but i was going about getting that sort of validation like the worst possible ways so yeah that like was the chaos that i would kind of bring to my life was like being in these really Icky relationships. Do you find yourself now able to identify a toxic relationship and find yourself able to uh, resist the temptation to enmesh? Yes and no. Um, more so yes, because I have, I, I know who I am at this point and am comfortable in my own skin, um, at least mentally and emotionally comfortable in my own skin. Um, and intellectually, but, uh, I do feel sometimes like I will do something that's really stupid and I, there's no reason for me to, to have it, to have done that other than I wanted to create some sort of, or to receive some sort of a reaction for doing that. 
And I find myself doing that a, a lot sometimes, but then it just won't happen for a while. So I kind of have these concentrated periods of just like saying things that are really stupid and um, being in a talk. Like, I don't know. I think when also when when I think about toxic relationships, there's there's negativity coming from both sides. And I think that I've recently come to realize that a lot of the negativity is coming from my side and coming from like these imagined obstacles that I'm putting between me and the other person. I would imagine too, that you've got a lot of buried rage in you. You you know, I I don't, I don't get that from talking to you, but from what you've been through in your life, um, who, who wouldn't be pissed off because you went through some really difficult shit you know, you had all this drama with your sister. You you were raised by a single mom who invalidated your feelings. You dealt with racism. Mm-hmm. You've 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 gone into sex work just to keep your head above water. Mm-hmm. I mean, why not put your fist through a fucking wall? Yeah, it's that. But then it's like, yeah. But then I have to clean up the wall bits. <laughs> like then I have to deal with like the after effects of being mad and. And so, so many times that when I, I will get mad, I will just talk myself out of being mad and, um, which works sometimes and other times it doesn't. But I think actually I went, I acted out, I think I acted out a lot of that rage on other people and not in a, in a straightforward way, in a passive aggressive way. Good for you. That a girl. That's what (laughs) I did for, for decades with what, with what I thought were jokes. I thought it was funny. I couldn't see that it was just it's it bad was news. anger. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I cut you off. I did that a lot. And I I think I kind of got it out of my system. A lot of the rage I got out of my system in college because I, it was kind of my first um, understanding of injustice and my first understanding of like white privilege and how I've been influenced negatively by um like just systematic racism and stuff so it was that was a lot of rage filled years for me and to an extent i acted out um healthily like went to a lot of parties and like did drugs and was like generally a cynic and kind of you know thought i was very um blase and whatever i don't know i had a lot of different phases in college well you know i would i would think your playwriting would be like the ultimate healthiest place for you to 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 get out your your rage you know you you really lit up when i asked you that question about what you felt the first time you heard you your words performed (laughs) and it uh it just um it's a little heartbreaking hearing your story because i i i see this kind of wounded kid Mm -hmm. inside of you that just wants to be seen that just wants to be felt and heard and and embraced and and you're you've just struggled so hard to find that outlet i mean i think we all on some level kind of have that that's life's biggest battle is how Mm -hmm. can we be validated in a way that isn't clingy or needy or 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 gross right you know how do we get to that place where we where we like ourselves and we can navigate the world yeah but um i don't know that just that just kind of um struck me yeah no definitely and i think too that now that i've stopped 
putting myself in terrible positions, which actually doesn't have anything to do with sex work. It really has to do more with the fact that I would knowingly get into really dumb relationships or like one-sided relationships that were not healthy or conducive to my growth at all. And I think that now that I've stopped doing that bullshit stuff that I can really just focus on on my my work and uh so far like the past year it's I've gotten like three times as much writing done as I have like years prior so it's awesome so that's that part's good but have you ever been to therapy yes (laughs) I when I was diagnosed when I was 10 that was my entrance into therapy and um I kept seeing my therapist regularly he was technically just my psychiatrist he was not great at talk therapy most psychiatrists are not (laughs) and he still is not but um we would and it also we we mostly just talked about the family issues because it was always some some drama drama at home so i i would like to have a therapist out here but my um insurance is very limited because i'm on the state plan and I have like a total of twenty three um, psychiatrists slash psychologists that I could possibly go to, and like half of them aren't accepting new patients, and the other half are probably terrible. So at this point, I'm kind of just like getting my meds from my doctor. Where where um are you living in the valley? Um, or over the hill? No, I I live in um like L A proper. There's a place that I went to uh, called the San Fernando Valley Family Counseling Center that works on a sliding scale. Oh, okay. And uh, my experience with them was awesome. Oh, cool. Um, uh, so Google Lofi Therapy and the name of your, just go, you know, do Los Angeles. And then um, you can often find places. Um, the Dede Hirsch Center might be another place where you could find Lofi uh, Counseling. Um, there's a... a Antioch College uh, here, uh, they train therapists, and I would bet that they, if you don't mind working with somebody who's working on their hours, mm-hmm. um, which I don't because the, the woman that I had was fantastic, mm-hmm. and uh, she was working on her, her hours. So, you know, just throwing, throwing that out there, that might be a good, uh, because you deserve to be heard and... and um, Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, anything else you'd like to share before we do uh, some fears and loves? Nah, nah, I'm good. Okay. Hit me with some fears. Okay. Um, I'm afraid my daughter will suffer silently. <laughs> yes, this is so dark. <laughs> <laughs> I, li- I like when they're dark right out of the gate. Okay. Um, I'm afraid my daughter will suffer silently as I did, and I'll never know she was in pain. That's a good one. Give me another one. Um, I'm afraid I'll never meet my birth parents because I waited too long to search and they died before I could locate them. Oh, you're not fucking around. You are <laughs> just, the gloves are off. Yep. Give me another one. I'm going to start f- fashioning a noose for myself. Um, I'm afraid my life partner will friend zone me after a couple of decades. Will what? <laughs> will friend zone me and decide they're no longer in love with me after we'd been together a couple of decades. Oh, put you in the friend zone out of the romantic. Yes. I've never heard that before. Friend zone. <laughs> yeah, friend zone. It's a good millennial term. Um, I'm afraid my mother will die poor because I failed to provide her with a comfortable life during her final years. Have you ever... Asked your mom for money when you were in these situations where oh, you yeah. felt like you had to turn for, for, to, to sex work? 
Well, she doesn't have a job. Oh. So she doesn't have money to Does get Does she me. look for jobs? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. Well, she actually, she has like a, a like a trust. We have like technically have a trust. Mm-hmm. So she has enough money to live on, but just like no more than enough money to live okay. on. Give me another fear and then we'll do some loves. Okay. Um, I fear that the individuals who impacted my life the most do not remember me at all. That's pretty heavy. <laughs> That's pretty heavy. Um, let's do some loves. Okay. I like how I say let's. I'm, <laughs> let's. I'm chipping in nothing. Let's. Um, I love the prairie, particularly under a pitch black sky dotted with stars. I keep mistaking for fireflies. Oh, that's a beautiful one. <laughs> I do. I do love the Midwest in the in the winter. There yeah. is um, the. Uh, I lived down a cul-de-sac uh, growing up that backed up to woods, and yes, then I, and then the on, best. it was the best. And then on the other side of the woods was Virgin Prairie. Had Ooh, truly wow. never nothing ever had wow. been built there. That's and the dream, man. It was it was so good when we would take our dog off the leash and we'd walk our her name was Misty and uh, she was a border collie and she would go through you know, because it was high grass. It was mm-hmm. like, I don't know, maybe three feet tall. Wow. And she would um you'd lose sight of her and then she'd spring up Aww. and then you'd lose sight of her and That's she'd so spring cute. up and it was it was just my favorite thing. That sounds in the in the world walking walking misty through the the virgin prairie Go childhood ahead. man yeah give me another one um i love when someone calls me out on my bullshit that's good that's <laughs> a good thing that's a true friend man yeah <laughs> that is a true friend that that to me is like a friendship goes to another level when you can lovingly uh call a friend on on their stuff yeah or unlovingly being like you're being an idiot like get your hand out of your ass yeah. stop being stupid um, I love it. I love watching a fan spin and the sound of a fan over total silence as I fall asleep. Oh, that's an interesting one. I've always liked fans. Object permanence. Um, I love when there's tons of snow on the ground, but it's so sunny you almost want to sunbathe. Yeah, oh, that's a good one. Uh, have you ever gone spring skiing? No. It's fun. it's fun. The snow isn't great, but you're in a t-shirt. You can even yeah. be in shorts. Uh, and you can really get burned because uh, yeah. you're getting a double reflection, <laughs> right? The sun and then the sun off the snow. Um, oh, I had another one. What, what what was the last one that you did? Um, I triggered something. Fans, I like. Fans. No, no, and then and then you did. Someone who calls me on my bullshit. No, and then what was after that? Um, snow on the ground. Oh, I know what it is. It's a hate and a love combined mm. when it's super, super cold and snow squeaks. Oh, yeah. Because I, I love the sobering effect of biting cold. Yes. But that it's almost like nails on a blackboard when, yeah. when snow is that, when it, when it squeaks because it. it's, so, yeah. it's so cold out. Yeah. A lot of that in Minnesota. Yeah. A lot of that, a lot of digging out the car, un, like from under a bunch of ice. I love when you get the first freeze and the local pond is like glass, <gasps> yes. and you walk out on it, and and you're a little afraid because yeah. you don't know if it's going to crack. And uh, putting on skates and being one of the first people to make an impression on the <gasps> on the ice that is like 
the uh, if I had like a last day on earth, that would be one of the things. Yeah, would be to put on skates and and skate on a perfect, perfect slab of pond ice. Or if you somehow had a weather machine and you could you could go from the tall prairie grass like right into the like putting on your skates and then and onto a beach. Yeah. Oh yeah, and then onto a beach. Yeah. That's the way to go. Got to get a weather machine. Um, let's see more loves. I have one more, I think. Um, oh, I love when the person I'm driving around with in the car, um, doesn't mind that sometimes I just don't talk for long periods of time. That's nice. That's nice. I don't like friendships where, uh, there can't be silence. It's, I get worn down by people that have to fill silence. Yeah. Even when you're like in the bathroom and you're like, okay, they're going to stop talking for this amount of time. And then they just keep going. Um, that's fun. Well, thank you so much for uh, for coming and um, sharing your life with us. And um, I really, I really hope that you can go. Not that I think you're a basket case, <laughs> but you've been through some stuff. And I really yeah. hope that you can go um, open up with the with the therapist. I mean, you sound yeah. like you're heading in the in the right direction. Totally. Yeah. Thank you, Gladys. Of course. Thank you. Many many thanks to uh, to Gladys. Um, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to uh, remind you guys that there's, well, first of all, uh, PodFest is uh, coming this September in Los Angeles. It's the uh, fourth annual LA Pod Festival and um, a really great lineup of people. And uh, I will be participating. And um, if you want to know everybody that is uh, performing there, go to the uh, LAPodFest.com website. And uh, they're doing what they did last year, uh, which is they are offering offering video streaming of the event. So if you can't travel to go see it, you can still see literally every single show that's there. And it's only $25. You can watch it as it happens live, uh, or you can watch it for up to three weeks after after the festival. And if you use the code uh, MENTAL, I think that's what the code is for uh, for my show. Let's see. Uh, mental. Yeah. If you use the offer code mental, you'll get, uh, $5 off. It'll only be 20 bucks, um, to, to see all those shows. And here's the good part. Uh, $7 of that goes to me. So you're really, really helping to support the show. Um, it's a great way to, to make a donation to the show and you get entertained, uh, as well. And there's, um, too many good shows to 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 list um some of the top some of the most popular podcasts oh god paul shut up um want to also remind you uh, a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined go to the website you can make donations you can shop at amazon through our portal we get a couple nickels doesn't cost you anything um, spread the word through about our podcast through social media. That really uh, that that helps because the more listeners we get, um, the the more financial footing we have to operate on. Because uh, it's there's we can we can use more money. Um, let's get to the surveys. This is struggle in a sentence survey. Uh, this was filled out by. I want to thank uh, the guys for uh, kicking in on the on the surveys. Uh, normally, it's about three quarters of the surveys are filled out by women, and I always f- feel like, "Come on, dudes, well, do your part. Let's uh, let's hear from you." And this week, uh, there's no shortage of uh, male respondents, so 
Thank you. This was filled out by a uh, kid, actually, who calls himself Ja Jamin, Jamon, and about his alcoholism, he writes, always quitting to help myself, but really only so my tolerance will decrease. About his OCD, I repeat what others say and speak only in even syllables. If someone speaks a sentence with an uneven number of syllables, I'll mentally repeat the sentence with added words until the sentence is even. It's amazing the lengths our brains will go to distract us. This was filled out um, by a woman who calls herself a fake name. And she writes, I live in a very rural area and it just took a week for a coworker to find out I'd uh, it took just a week for a coworker to find out I'd interviewed for another position 60 miles away. So how can I go see a therapist? They'd void my life insurance out of suspicion uh, I'd committed suicide if I died. And I might lose my professional license and my records with my therapist could become part of the public domain via the professional. I oh, got cut off right there. But I wanted to say uh, patients have way more rights than that. And um, that... They would have, first of all, they would have to have proof that you'd committed suicide. They, they couldn't just suspect that you'd committed committed suicide. And um, the I forget the name of the act, but there was a, a mental health act that was enacted about a um, year or so ago that greatly uh, enforced patients' rights um, with uh, mental uh, disabilities. And it might even be called the Mental Disabilities Act. I'm not sure. But uh, I believe that that most of the, this stuff is is your imaginings. Um, but I know it's scary to make that. You can also you could do a therapy uh, through the internet. There are uh, internet therapists, so you might check that out. Uh, this is a same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Blade Runner about her anxiety. Uh, there's a house on fire, but I don't know where it is and I can't smell the smoke. But if I don't call 911, people will burn to death and nobody believes me. Thank you for that. I actually almost burned my garage down uh, yesterday. My friend Jay was over. He needed a big piece of wood cut for his mantle. And it. it he wanted to use my table saw because I've got a really nice table saw. And um, when you're cutting on a table saw, you really want to have the edge that you guide against the fence, um, you want that edge to be straight so the, so the piece isn't moving around because when a piece moves around on a table saw, it can pinch and it can kick back, which can be really dangerous. Or the blade can get super hot because it's getting, getting jammed, which is what happened, especially if it's a really dense piece of wood. And this was a piece of white oak and it was smoking. And, um, and about two minutes, so we can finish cutting the piece of wood, but it really smells, you can just smell the, the burnt wood in the air. And all of a sudden I look, and the dust collector, which I have, is big, it's like a, a giant a garbage can, essentially, um, is on fire. It's a ball of orange flame, uh, the, the, the size of uh, a, a beach ball. <laughs> my life flashed before my eyes. I'm like, it's all over. Everything's done. Everything is done. And uh, so I turned the, the air off on the, uh, on the dust collector because that was feeding the, the flames. And, uh, and I'm trying to take this thing apart as fast as possible. You know, I've got the fire extinguisher out. Of course, I haven't 
ever really read the instructions, so I'm just staring at it. I don't know what to pull. I don't know what to squeeze. And I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to take the, the dust collector apart, uh, hopefully before it explodes, because you get enough sawdust together, it will explode. And uh, I was able to get this thing taken apart and empty all the uh, sawdust out. But, uh whew. I suppose every woodworker at some point uh, has has a uh, fire experience in their in their shop. All right, this is this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by um, a guy who calls himself Whiska, and it's uh, the snapshot from his uh, struggle that I wanted to read. He deals with depression and anxiety, and he writes, "I often have trouble, not so much with anger, but how it comes out." People often comment to me uh, when they have made me angry or annoyed that I lash out too viciously at them or are too mean. At the time, and even later, I felt I was justified with my reaction. Everyone has the right to be annoyed at someone, yet I get called out on it. No, everyone has the right to be annoyed and angry, but people don't have the right to lash out at, at other people. Um, continuing, this uh, has caused me to hold in any frustration making me feel stressed and alone as I have no way of venting my frustration. You have no way yet of venting your frustration. That's what support groups and therapy and reading self-help books is all about, is learning ways to vent your frustration. Continuing, I'm worried that one day I won't be able to control my pent-up anger at people who annoy me throughout the life, my life. The person walking behind my car while I'm in reverse, I'm just going to run over. Blocking a supermarket aisle, toss your trolley and push you into a shelf. Making noise in the library, I'm going to scream and punch you in the nose. Writing things down, um, these things down, I feel that my reactions are over the top, but the narcissism of people winds me up. I guess there's a bit of Travis Bickle in all of us. Dude, I totally relate to the feelings. And you know, me almost snapping at, at somebody um, at the grocery store um, is uh, shows us that, you know, even... Oh, shut up, Paul. I just bored myself. You're not alone, dude. You're not alone. But get some tools to cope. How's that? That's what I wanted to say. This is an, an awful moment that... Uh, Listener Nikki emailed me, and uh, she writes, I woke up last Monday to a fraud alert email from my credit card company. One by one, each of my accounts were targeted. By the end of the day, all my accounts were frozen. I would planned to leave the city prior to this because the intensity of the stalking has been causing my panic and depression to deepen. But with no money, that plan flew out the window. After a week, I managed to get the charges removed, the accounts closed, and new ones opened. I got another email yesterday from Blizzard Entertainment. They informed my World of Warcraft they informed me my World of Warcraft account was being banned for illegal gaining of game gold. I erupted in laughter. After my stalker could no longer access my accounts, he ruined the credit of my level 85 night elf druid. <laughs> that is fantastic. I tell you, a good awful moment is Christmas to me. Just absolute... If Christmas was 24 hours of me reading awfulsome moments, I would be more, I would, I would decorate the entire neighborhood in lights. That's the closest thing that I can come to understanding 
the joy people feel around Christmas. If somebody would just say, oh, well, Paul, it's like when you read an awfulsome moment, then I'd be like, oh, yes, of course you love Christmas. Now I don't think that you were a uh, gullible idiot. Actually, I don't think people. I'm jealous of people that can can enjoy Christmas. Uh, this is uh, Struggle in a Sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Happy Happy Elf. And about his sex addiction, he writes, It's humbling when even hookers won't reply to texts. Um, snapshot from his life. Does secretly watching mom getting banged by yet another boyfriend on the couch when I was nine qualify as trauma? Yeah, I'd say that... Uh, it probably does. Uh, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Captain Jack Sorrow um, about her depression. It's like being a beached whale that can survive without water. You can't go anywhere and there's no solace that it won't be forever. About her anxiety, I used to dive routinely with dangerous sharks sans cage, yet the prospect of having to call to make a haircut appointment gives me an aneurysm. That is so, that is so fucking awful and fantastic. Awfulsome. Same survey filled out by uh, a non-binary person who refers to themselves uh, as useless fuck. Uh, They write about their anxiety. Like walking up the stairs in the dark and then you take an extra step and it's like that falling feeling but all the time. But being a sex crime victim, the motherfucker's getting married the day after my birthday and I can't tell anyone that it makes me want to vomit because they'll want to know why. About having autism, uh, they write, I can't go out with my friends for a night because just the thought of bright lights, loud music, unfamiliar food, and having to keep up a conversation that long makes me want to sleep for about 20 years. I think so many of us relate to that, that feeling. Sometimes just the thought of doing something will make me go back to bed. Um, and they want to know, uh, they want to hear more episodes that uh, involve autism or autism spectrum. Uh, I'd recommend the, especially the um, episode with uh, Louise or uh, John H. I think those are good episodes around that. This is a snapshot uh, from uh, Denise. She writes, I decided to tell my parents I was raped. And in parentheses, she writes, I hate that word and use assaulted usually. We were all doing yard work. When I finally vomited it out, my mother became hysterical and ran inside. My dad followed her. No one said anything comforting to me or stayed with me. They fucking did nothing. It was still pretty recent. I needed a fucking hug or something. I struggle with feeling responsible for my trauma and angry and my emotionally vacant parents. This is an incident I will never let go of, and I don't want to. I don't know if this is uh, what kind of answer you were looking for. Feeling unsure makes me anxious. Yeah, that's absolutely. I mean, that is a seminal snapshot from a person's life. That says so much. That that, that made me angry when I read this. Um, you know, I read a lot of really fucked up shit on, on this podcast, But when I see parents putting their own emotions in front of a child's need to be comforted, and I know your parents are emotionally ignorant. I know they were probably raised um, 
they never had intimacy and compassion probably modeled for them. But it just makes me angry that in the moment you need them the most, they make it all about themselves. I highly recommend you contact a Rape and Incest National Network and go to some counseling or some, any kind of um, rape crisis center because you deserve you deserve to be around people who understand the myriad fucked up ways that trauma affects us. It is a roller coaster in the dark sometimes going backwards and we need all the support we can get and you deserve it you absolutely deserve it but just know that you are not alone in in dealing with that and i would it sounds like your parents are not people to go for to for important emotional things so i would stop trying to go to that dry well for water uh, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, uh, actually uh, she is a teenager, uh, calls herself living calculator about her anorexia. If I don't lose weight, I will lose control and the world will fall apart. About her OCD, the world is made of numbers and I need to count them. Uh, snapshot from her life. This past family reunion, everyone made food and brought it in for us to eat. There was no way that I could know how many calories were in those food things. But uh, I knew my family would freak out if I didn't eat. I wound up eating half a deviled egg and burst into tears because I couldn't calculate the number of calories per bite and control things. Thank you for that. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Piper Pie about her trichotillomania. She writes, I can't stop pulling out each hair, comparing it with the last. I know I should stop, but my hand keeps moving upwards, grasping a hair from my head and yanking. Hair litters the floor around me. How much time has passed? Hours or minutes? I need to stop pulling, but I can't. Tomorrow I will try to hide the bald patches and hope no one will comment. This is an uh, awful moment filled out by a uh, guy who calls himself Soldier Socks. He writes, A few years back, after struggling quite hard, I finally found a job that paid very well and had frequent breaks. On one break, a co-worker showed me an online dating profile with a, quote, Check out this whore. It was the woman I had been sleeping beside for the past four years. Her profile was more than clear about what she wanted and stated she wanted to upgrade from trolling parking lots when I'm on night shift. That night, I got my layoff notice. Wow. Dude. Sending you some love. Sending you some love in a, in a basket with a bow. That is harsh. Um, this is a psych ward experience uh, survey filled out by a guy who calls himself complicated need I say more uh, and he writes uh, why were you hospitalized psychotic found with a noose and a butcher knife bad day really uh, 
Describe your experience. I felt like I didn't belong there, like everyone else was ill and I wasn't. I wasn't allowed to leave the building unsupervised and was there for two weeks, so I felt trapped and like an animal. I didn't feel like I was being helped at all, just forgotten and ignored, so it was up to me to get myself better. I guess it did help because it showed me what my lowest point is like and that maybe it's not so scary after all. This is a happy moment filled out by uh, Isabel. And she writes, my parents raised me like a tiny art scholar, so I've always had a deep love of all art. My parents took me to the MoMA instead of the playground. My dad is a person who has never had any idea how to relate to a child because of his own disconnected upbringing, so this is the only way he knew how to bond. One of my happiest moments of my life was waiting in line with my dad at an art shop in the south of France to buy a Matisse print. I just remember being five years old and being so totally excited to buy this pretty picture of a bush and being so happy to see the joy in my father's face as he saw I was enjoying myself. We both were reveling in each other's joy and it was really beautiful. That is like the opposite of those parents that freaked out when she told them that she had been raped. It's It, it takes so little the tiniest gesture can mean so much to a child. Now, again, I don't know what it's like to parent. Uh, you know, I almost screamed at people at Whole Foods because uh, the line was too long and wasn't moving. I can't imagine what it would be like having five kids and you're depressed and, uh, you know, add nine other things. This is also from the Psych Ward Experience uh, Survey. Um, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself, I'm not ashamed to use my real name, Joel. And he writes, uh, I was at a weekly appointment at the behavior health unit. Uh, oh, this is the same Joel while enlisted in the army. I admitted to having suicidal ideations, which I almost acted on. My commander was called and they sent me. Describe your experience. I really regret not staying and using the tools they could have taught me. I felt like I was sent against my will and just waited until I could sign myself out. And this one, this is a big one. Um, this was filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Cassandra Complex. And uh, she's in her 50s. And um, she writes, when I was 19, I was hospitalized for a month. At the time, I was severely depressed. However, I now see that it saved my life. It's no coincidence that my mother and grandmother both had children at 19 and neither were happy being mothers. Both suffered from depression. My grandmother's had had my grandmother had bouts of it, and my mother was diagnosed clinically depressed at age eight or nine. Very rare in those days, and has been all her life. If I hadn't been hospitalized, I'm sure I would have followed in their footsteps and gotten pregnant. I'm also sure I would have committed suicide. Describe your experience. It was awful and it was crazy, and I wrote a little story about it. Here you go. So this is basically her at 19. Uh, I hate group. There's always this slow-talking cowboy know-it-all who monopolizes the session and tells everybody how they're supposed to feel. This guy Dale was here the first two weeks I got here. I didn't talk much then anyway, so I was glad he was filling the silence, but I got tired of his droning pretty quickly. The worst was when anyone else would tell how their day went, and instead of getting feedback from the counselor, Dale would monopolize the conversation with his dumb shit advice. Well, I think you should have said something. That's what I would have done. If you don't say anything, then how do you expect anybody to know what you're thinking? I always try to tell people what I'm thinking. 
Yeah, Dale, we know. Since Dale had been discharged a week ago, things had turned around pretty quickly for me. I had my first day pass last Saturday. My parents came to take me to the movies and the mall for the afternoon. Just a careful little trip out, like it's normal for a 19-year-old to spend Saturday afternoon at Ridgemar Mall with her mom and dad. That's probably why they took me to the Northeast Mall instead. We're less likely to run into someone we know there. At least I'd like to think that they were thinking ahead like that. But then... There was their choice of matinee, my first day out of the loony bin, and they take me to see Jessica Lange in Francis, a psychodrama about a young woman who won't conform to society and her mother's will and ends up lobotomized. Oh, and she's an actress, a blonde actress, like me, for what it's worth. Um, I found it all kind of sardonic and can't wait to get out of here simply to tell the story to my friends as soon as I make any. I ended up here after the only true heart-to-heart I've ever had with God. I had it with him over a couple of bottles of sleeping pills. Um, I wasn't sure there were enough there to kill me, but I wasn't sure there weren't enough there to kill me either. And since I'd stopped going to church around sixth grade, the only Jesus I knew was Sunday school Jesus, the one who forgives you for anything uh, you do as long as you ask. Though I had worked into my own theology that the one thing he might not forgive me for is suicide. So I had to figure out if I was damning myself to hell with this action or would Sunday school Jesus forgive me. When it came down to it, I was in such emotional pain that I couldn't imagine a hell that could be worse. I was so alone with my frustration and pain and so thwarted by my family and so angry, so angry. I basically told my own personal savior that if he couldn't forgive me for ending this pain, then he wasn't a very compassionate God after all, and I wasn't sure I wanted to believe in him. Our audio just dropped out. Or uh, or that I wanted his love. If this was the only love that I was being offered in the whole universe, I was willing to forego it for a little peace instead. When I was committed a few days later, I was amused when the psych nurse asked me if I was still having thoughts of hurting myself. I never had thoughts of hurting myself. I only had thoughts of ending the hurt. But now things are looking a little better. For one thing, I'm starting to think some of this may not be all my problem. When I was being admitted, my mother told the doctor that she wanted to meet with him privately to give him some, quote, background on me. As soon as she had the meeting, the doctor started seeing her three times a week and had her on stronger meds than I'm on. I have to admit there's something reassuring in that. I'm basically a walking wound. I was born into a legacy of depressed women who all had children at the age of 19. Here I am, 19, and what am I going to do? And not that any of my foremothers were even particularly maternal. My own mom took every opportunity she could as I was growing up to remind me, whatever you do, don't ever have kids. The other sage advice I get from my mom is, learn how to type so you can get a good job. I have much bigger dreams for myself, but her depression and bleak reality have no room for dreams and have little room for me. All she wants for her daughter is a good job. She works as a receptionist since she can't type. That means she's always that means that she's always nailed down to a front desk and envies the ladies who can walk around, run errands and sometimes hang out with the salesman at the car dealership where she's been working for the past 5 years. And she's miserable there. Not that she's been happy anywhere else, but she's particularly miserable there. Car dealers run in their own strata of society, and J.W. of J.W. Chevrolet Pontiac and Buick is particularly famous in my town. I've withheld the name of the the dealership. Um, 
you'll probably understand why. Uh, he stars in his own commercials and fancies himself a motivational speaker. He even gave the commencement address at my high school graduation two years ago, and he has all these motivational sayings posted all around my mother's desk that drive her nuts. Stuff like, ruthlessly compete against your own best self. People buy from people they trust, and they trust people they like. And taking accurate messages is the difference between copying and creative writing. What does that even mean? For a victim of everything like my mother, it's too much to bear. However, however anyone would have had trouble bearing this particular hypocrisy, however, anyone would have had trouble bearing this particular hypocrisy since J.W., Chevrolet, Pontiac, and Buick also has some of the crookedest repairmen in town. My mother comes home all the time with stories about how these jerks were bragging about ripping off their customers. And my mom is the one who has to take the calls and messages when the repairmen are hiding from the customers. It just gives my mother one more thing to resign herself to. The real world isn't fair. But I will not be resigned. And this battle of wills between my mom's resignation from all things and my struggle to the death to win over the despair is what has brought me here. And now that I'm going into my fourth and what will be my final week here, Dale is back at group. But he's not talking this time. He's quiet. He's even asked to contribute and he just shakes his head. Shakes his head and looks at the floor. It's kind of sad, really. Though we were so happy without him. So sad to see him back. I've promised myself that I will not recidivate. Recidivate? Yeah. Uh, or whatever you call coming back. In the few weeks I've been here, I've seen so many leave and come back, uh, come right back a few days later. That is not an option for me. This Natalie Wood splendor in the grass melodrama is all good fun and dramatic and all, but I really don't want to spend the rest of my life playing this role. I have more range than this. And since Dale left, I ascended a bit, I think. Not that he ruled the roost anywhere outside of group, but all us inmates have been having trouble with the staff, especially the night staff. They mainly consist of students from the Baptist seminary pulling graveyard shift so they can study the Bible and the relative calm of a psych ward. And there's something freeing about being certifiable. I can cuss like a sailor at the Baptists just to watch them jump. I would never do that on the outside. And we can give them absolute hell when they fuck with us. Like when they declare something against the rules that we've been doing all night. Like listening to albums in the snack room. All of a sudden we're not allowed to stand around while we're in there. Everyone has to be seated and the TV has to be turned off during head count, which is in the middle of a show. And when we protest, they say it's in the rule book. And if we ask to see the rule book, they say uh, we need written notice from our doctor. It's all bullshit and they know we know it. So I started a formal complaint procedure once Dale was gone, and group actually became a productive time, and that led to elections of award spokesmen, and I was nominated and elected. My first election, spokesman of my mental ward. How should I list that on my resume? But really, what this reveals is that I'm starting to find constructive ways to stand up for myself. I still lose it on occasion. I'm still no good with unreasonableness. Like the other day when I came back from group and the staff had changed my room. They moved all my things into another room completely, without any warning. It was such a violation. The little piece of ground that I had found solid had been yanked. But I made a formal protest, not like the night I was on the phone 
with my mother trying to get her to understand that it's not that she's a horrible mother, but that I need to be able to assert myself without feeling like I'll destroy her. I felt like I was finally defending myself when one of the Baptists came by and hung up the phone. No warning, nothing. Just click, and it's time for you to go to your room. That night, I raged like I'll never rage again. I paced and screamed like a banshee. I exercised 19 years of demons and did it in a trance-like state that lasted until my doctor could be summoned from the other side of town and brought into the hospital at well after midnight. Though it may not have been a sane response, it felt like an appropriate one. And getting the sanity out was a, getting the insanity out was a catharsis I will always honor. But now we're back in group, and we're all trying to coax Dale into speaking again. It's hard to believe that we would do this since we know once we do, he'll never shut up. But he's been sitting there for days now, so forlorn, and we all feel like we need to know why he's back. What happened outside that was so horrible that brought him right back, and silenced him too? Finally, Dale starts to spill. I needed to get my car fixed. My wife needed hers for work, and mine's been sitting in the garage since I was admitted two months ago. It's still under warranty, so I took it back to the dealers. I think I might just have needed the battery changed, but I asked them to do a tune-up, and they just wouldn't listen to me. I kept asking them nicely, but the first guy started making fun of me, and then he brought a second guy in, and then they all started giving me the runaround, and I was trying to do the breathing exercises that the doctor taught us, but I also felt like I had to speak up for myself. They just didn't seem to understand what I was saying. He started to tear up a little, and then he said, JW, Chevrolet, Pontiac, and Buick are supposed to be the best in town. But they just wouldn't listen to me. I kept trying to explain it to them, but they just kept saying things that didn't make sense to me. I didn't know what to do. I finally called my wife, and she brought me back here. And that's when I realized that we weren't the crazy people. We were the sane ones. We are the sensitive ones. We are the ones who can't always make sense of the craziness in the world, and sometimes it scares the hell out of us. The people in my loony bin were locked up for their own protection, to protect them from the assholes out there in the real world. I may, ne I may never love Dale, but I'll always remember him. That was one of the most memorable survey responses I, I, I've ever read that was that was so beautiful and poetic and uh, sweet and heartbreaking and I can't believe your parents took you to see Francis wow wow um, and finally here's a happy moment this was filled out by a woman who calls herself um, actually uh, it's a girl she's 16 uh, she calls herself I'm not funny and she writes, my little half-sister is the absolute light of my life. She's five. And she's in that phase where she wants to be like the big kids. So she likes to dress like me and say things that I say, uh, etc. We have different moms, but we still look very much alike, and she knows it. One day, I came out into the living room to hang out with her while her mom went to the store. After a minute, she got excited, as she often does, and ran into her room. A minute later, without saying a word, she returned wearing a black tank top and dark blue jean shorts, the exact outfit I was wearing. I wanted to take a picture, so she posed with me in front of the mirror, pulling our dog into the picture too. It was one, so hilarious, and two, the sweetest thing ever. To be loved so completely and unconditionally 
by such a beautiful, innocent, perfect human being with no ulterior, ulterior motives is one of the best feelings I can imagine. The fact that she wants to be like me. That she doesn't know whether I'm fucked up or a bad person or maybe have terrible taste in clothes is so reassuring. It makes me want to do absolute everything I can to be a good sister to her. She makes me so happy and I love her so much more than words can say. Love that. Love that. Well, guys, thanks for uh, thanks for listening and um, if you're out there and you're stuck, just make one phone call. Just make one phone call. Maybe to a, a friend that you think might understand or to a therapy office or a, maybe a rehab or a crisis line anything just try one thing you don't have to change your whole life just one thing and see see if that doesn't get the ball rolling uh, it's easier to get the ball rolling than you, than you think it is um, and just remember that you're not alone and uh, thanks for listening Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.